0: You APG It's the airline pilot
1: guy
2: airline pilot Guy episode
1: 347 yeah, in the sky. It's the
2: pilot guy. Hello you're listening to the airline pilot Guy show the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff your host broadcasting live from studio 1410 in the Sheridan Studios in Birmingham, Alabama. Today's show was recorded on the 30th of October,
1: 2018.
2: In today's episode, Aviation News, your feedback And this week's plane tale, he flies east, flies north, flies west, flies undone. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 347 is ready for pushback. Yay! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast that we do weekly we talk about aviation news and answer your feedback. And also here to help me in this endeavor from her Lakeside studio in South Carolina, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph.
3: Hello, Captain Jeff. Great to see you. I'm not sure how much help I'll be tonight, but we'll certainly try.
2: It's gotta be more help than if I tried to do this by myself. That's for sure.
3: We shall see.
2: Yeah. And also joining us from the Fairbairn Studios in Washington, D.C., a professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London. Captain Nick. Uh, Jeff, can you hear me? I can hear you.
4: Yeah, it's,
2: oh,
5: blast. <laughs> we're here and we're starting the show. It's fantastic. The,
2: the marvels
5: of modern technology.
2: <laughs> it's a miracle. It really it's is. And also joining us tonight in that same studio in Washington, D.C., we have a barbecue master motorcycle rider, a party boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy airline, Captain Dana.
4: Well, great to be here in this wonderful location here in the D.C. area, and uh, I'm actually out here flying, so I'll tell you about that here in a little bit. What? Eh, No kidding. That can't
2: be right. All right. Well, great great to see you, Dana. And also joining us. The uh, proprietor of said studio in Washington, D.C., we have a professional photographer, a private pilot, and
1: CIA operative, we're thinking, (laughs) Robert Fairbairn. Hey, everybody. Uh, It's been a a lot of fun this evening and uh, (laughs) a a challenge to say the least, but but looking forward to uh, a good show here.
2: It's gotta be better than the first what how long have we been at this already?
1: <laughs> I don't know, it Sounded great here all night, Jeff. Several hours.
2: It's been one of those nights, but that's okay. We're finally we're happy because we're actually recording
1: There's a, a show. Of wires strewn across my desk. It's gonna take a week to clean up.
3: <laughs> They're all labeled, so they can go back to their appropriate places, I'm it, sure. It that it didn't is. seem
1: to work
4: though. It it, boy, Let
3: me
2: <sighs> anyway, so um you know that's one of those things about doing a podcast. Sometimes it all works out swimming, swimmingly, but uh, technology sometimes has a way of kind of biting you in the uh, in the bottom. Um, so here we are. We're uh, finally got. We finally had this thing on track, and we're going to do our best to record a show tonight. And uh, we're so glad that you're here with us, especially those who are in the live chat room. I think we have some folks in there. Buttons right?
3: for punishment. Come yeah, on. They must the be,
2: they must be. Uh, it is kind of late for everyone actually. So, uh, we're, uh, we're going to try to go as, as long as we can tonight. And then, uh, <laughs> pardon? yeah, that's what she said. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
4: uh,
2: so let's see, why don't we do some catching up and, uh, let's start with, uh, ladies first, Dr. Steph, how are you?
3: I am fantastic. Thank you very much for asking. Um, trying to think what happened since the last time I talked to you all. I can't remember what day of the week that was last week.
2: It was like it was uh, Wednesday, Wednesday, I think
3: Wednesday. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had a very lovely weekend. Um, it was my youngest brother's 30th birthday. So he came to town and we went to see Hamilton, which I'd actually seen once before over the summer. Um,
5: well, you see his, it twice now.
3: I have.
5: Oh, unbelievable.
3: I haven't seen it once. I can't. Oh, wait I'm so me. sorry. <laughs> You'll love it when you do. Uh, it, it's a fantastic show. Um, it was a really nice, uh, treat for his birthday because he'd wanted to see it for a very long time before i even knew that the show existed he was talking about it and seeing its praises and uh so that was a lot of fun kind of just a whirlwind trip for him but it was nice to hang out and catch up and um just uh getting ready to head off to new york city in a couple of days for the marathon there on sunday
2: excellent so how did the uh, performance of uh, Hamilton compare with uh, the one that you saw? in you saw it in Chicago? I saw it in
3: what? Chicago. Um, no, they were both excellent. Um,
2: okay.
3: Very, very good. Uh, very well done. You know, just certainly there's always differences between yeah. uh, actors and styles a little bit, but um, no, they're both fantastic. So if you're in one of those cities where the show is coming to town, one of the touring companies, I would still highly recommend.
2: Okay. Note taken. All right. Um, so now we mentioned uh, during the intro here that we have two of our regular guests uh, in studio with Robert slash Richard slash Dick in his uh, home studio in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and let's see. Let's start with uh, Captain Nick. How are you? Been Hi,
5: yeah, well, I've dragged my sorry all the way across the uh, Atlantic uh, and we roared as fast as we could. Uh, up here to uh, uh, Adams Morgan, uh, including a sprint across a bridge, uh, which Dana managed masterfully. I was very impressed. I never realized he could build up such a head of steam. In fact, the only problem he had was stopping, uh, you know, knocking people aside as we tried to get to Robert's place in time. Uh, Sadly, um, the intricacies of a a multiple uh, mic setup here, uh, momentarily just for like three hours, uh, defeated us. <laughs> but now we're doing it. It all seems to be working fine. Um, br- brilliant to be here. So pleased that uh, Robert could host us. Lovely seeing him. Uh, of course, the great big bottle of whiskey we bought him has had nothing to do with the fact that he greeted us with open arms. Um, and
6: um, we're really looking forward to having a, a fine show. Um, uh, personally, I had a lovely flight out, I came to Washington via Greenland which is perhaps a slightly unusual route, a long way north to avoid the headwinds over the Atlantic. But we made it in like 8 hours and 10 minutes uh, with an unbelievably small amount of fuel when we landed. But That's the way of the world nowadays. I have to say I was looking at our fuel reserves going, Ooh, I hope there's no trouble. And of course there wasn't. Washington managed to get us in At the head of the queue, we (laughs) even beat British.
2: Did you declare a mayday, mayday, mayday emergency fuel?
5: No, we didn't quite get that far. We were very close to going uh, We're minimum fuel, which I think is a a special call you make in the States when you're right Mm -hmm. down to your, you run out of any spare and you really don't want to get any extra vectoring. So we, we didn't actually have to say that, but we were damn
2: close excellent well we're glad you're here and Dana uh, at the last minute this morning uh you notified us I believe it was this morning or maybe yesterday that uh, you had, oh last night that you had picked up a trip uh and that you were also going to be in uh in Dulles at Dulles uh, International Airport and so how have you been sir
4: well I didn't actually pick up a trip they assigned me a trip but that's okay okay. it's it's you know sitting on reserve that's the way it worked out but i think a higher power actually beyond the the earthly type may have actually uh arranged this uh setup and i had nothing to do with it well i know but it was it was okay
2: it was me
3: That's (laughs) <laughs> That's <laughs> he the
2: higher
4: about. power. She <laughs> had everything to do with it. But so I got notification that I had a been assigned a three day trip, and the first overnight just happened to be one leg to Dallas. And I said, "Hmm, isn't Nick going to be in Dallas?" tonight i sat thinking about this and confirmed it with my fellow apg co-host and indeed he you know because it was way past his bedtime uh that he was indeed coming here um via acme red and then i looked at the schedule and his schedule and i said well son of a gun i'm arriving just about 10 to 15 minutes scheduled arrival later than nick was um so we were in contact and he was gracious enough to uh, the way it worked out he watched me taxi in into dulles as he was on the people mover in dulles to customs and it worked out just about right where he had waited two or three minutes for me
6: to come from uh, the gate and come on down. now you know i'm sitting here and thinking about the fact that you're mentioning your fuel state and uh coming in here to Dulles. we only had one leg today um Amazingly enough, there was a fight on the radio between an unnamed carrier American and the air traffic controller because they were holding going into DC on a cavoo day clear, severe clear, unlimited visibility, and uh, light winds. And they were holding for volume. And the air traffic controller and the American pilot proceeded to get into it because they were holding, and was very much like what Nick just mentioned. They were skosh on fuel. They didn't have an alternate. They didn't have a planned alternate because the weather forecast was a player in a million. So uh, when Nick tells me he's low on fuel, um, you know, well, not flowing fuel, but getting to, oh, my, you know, what's going on here? And I'm thinking, okay, here's the radio calls in D.C. And everybody's holding going into D.C.A. Fortunately, it wasn't in that case for him.
4: I, I don't think he'd. Want to particularly try to bring that Airbus 330 fully loaded into DCA on a 69 or what was it 7,100 foot runway? I think now or somewhere around there, they just extended it, so it's been a while since they've been there. But, anyways, uh, very fortunate to get this trip to sign, so I can come here and, and see Nick in person. And, uh, he had a great ride on the van, had a very nice conversation with his uh, uh, first officer that flew over the pond with him. Um, and I was, uh, I was uh, really, it was really nice to meet his crew and to spend some quality time with Nick, uh, coming on over here. So, um, really honored to, to be able to do that. And I'm going to be in Philadelphia tomorrow night, another one of my favorite overnights, um, and going to have the opportunity, hopefully as long as I don't get rerouted, um, to go to a, uh, uh, one of my favorite locations that's monks, not that I'm a beer guy, but they have some of the, uh. Best. Uh, it's one of the best beer bars, probably, definitely in the country, but one of the better ones in the world, I think. So uh, that's just going on with me. I'll I'll probably do a crew log this week yeah, after because I only flew one leg today, and I'm not going to brag on myself. Uh, but it was a fantastic flight because the weather was absolutely beautiful the whole entire way up here. Um, but I'll probably do a little crew log after I fly the next couple of days to go ahead and update everybody because I actually did go on the sim last week. Uh, I talked a little bit about that on the show, so uh, last week, um, but I'll go ahead and give a full rundown as to what everything in, it, in everything that did happen uh, on this upcoming trip. I'm hoping the weather is going to be good, but Wednesday uh, Wednesday uh, actually into Thursday is supposed to be kind of cruddy in the Atlanta area. Flying with a brand new FO by the way. Excellent. Excellent guy, really sharp. Uh, flew um, a Hilo in the Army. He was a Black Hawk uh, pilot instructor extraordinaire, and uh, really enjoyed the very the, the one leg we had coming up here. We didn't stop chatting for one minute. So I'm really enjoying flying with this uh, this first officer. So that's about it from my side of the world.
2: Robert, uh, being a great host there in DC, you've been on the show before, um, at least. Once, maybe a couple of times, right?
1: The one time when you were here.
2: Just once, okay. Just um, welcome back, and uh, tell us what have you been up to, sir?
1: What have I been up to? Well, the uh, continuing saga of my airplane continues, which is what continuing sagas do. Um, <laughs> and uh, mostly, I really just wanted to set a record for the longest delay on an APG episode. So I rigged something up here tonight. And, <laughs> you know, Well, congratulations! You great win. Success!
3: Great success! <laughs> you get
1: the prize. <laughs> Well, been we're glad been a that- slow couple of weeks here. Actually, I normally I travel about 40, 50% of the time and I've been home for I don't know, almost two months now, which is a little bit unusual, but uh, start traveling again here in a couple of weeks, combination of uh, slow season and some of the trade shows that are usually elsewhere have been here in DC that I work. So I've, I've been sticking around home a lot more than normal, which has its advantages, but uh, it feels a little weird.
2: Well, thank you again, Robert, for uh, hosting the two hosts that you have there with you. Um, we really do appreciate it <laughs> and Steph, um, anything important coming up, uh, here this weekend?
3: Yeah. Just what I mentioned a little bit earlier. I think I did mention it
2: Yeah, since we started okay. recording. Oh, the well, that's right.
3: New York city marathon mm-hmm. this weekend. And hopefully I'll have a chance to get to meet up with a couple of listeners, potentially Tanya and Dave Abbey and maybe even radio Roger. Me. Oh, cool. Me and Nick. Me. <laughs> Nick's on Monday. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. After the fact. May, I think he said <laughs> two maybe is already. <laughs> and I've I've already lost track of the fact that we've already heard from catching up with Steph. And uh, <laughs> I'm so confused now because That's we've funny. been doing this for that other several other hours. <laughs> so,
3: Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to do my best to make all that work out. Um, okay. I, I have family and other things going on that, that include uh, travel plans. So. Uh, we're trying to coordinate things at the moment. So if there are any other firm plans, I will let everyone know as best I know. But right now I don't know. So that's what I know. <laughs>
2: wow. <Well>, I'm confused. <laughs> but um,
3: if you download, if you're in the New York area and you are planning on cheering on folks in the marathon, you can download the free app from the New York City Marathon, the TCS New York City Marathon. And you can type my name into it. And it should give you a, a map. That shows my position along the course in real time. So you will know where I am.
2: What would they type in? Stephanie, Stephanie Plummer. Plummer. Okay. P l u m m e r. Yep. Okay. Very good. Um, so if
5: we type in Dr.
4: Steph? Probably.
3: If you type in Dr. Steph, I don't think it's going to come up with uh, my actual information.
4: <laughs> oh, okay. Steph, how was your dad's cruise, by the way? I forgot to ask you.
3: Oh, yeah. Very nice. Yeah. He had a lot of, uh, a lot of great things to say. He, he went to Cuba for a day on a cruise. They so. yeah. got some some advice from Dana, who had recently been there as well. So thank you very much for doing that. That was very helpful for him.
4: Excellent.
2: Mm-hmm. Let's see. I'm on a four day trip. On day two in Birmingham, Alabama, yesterday in Pensacola, and tomorrow in Madison, Wisconsin, where I'll be meeting up with Chris Ott and anybody else that happens to be in the Madison, Wisconsin area. We're going to meet up for a lunch somewhere. We're not. Uh, we haven't specified a location yet, but uh, if you're listening to this live, so it's a very, very small audience right now, uh, if you happen to hear me speaking about it, uh, make sure that you uh, look and see where we're going to be on Slack and uh, you know, or just go to downtown Madison and just start screaming APG and we'll probably hear you.
3: That'll definitely work. It's a small town, right?
2: Yeah.
4: yeah. It's a great small town.
2: <laughs> it is. It's a wonderful city. I'm looking forward to it. So. Anyway, that's um, that's what I have planned. And nothing really exciting happening in my life since we've last recorded. So that's about it. Watch the uh, F1 uh, race on uh, Sunday and watched uh, Hammy, Hamilton become the uh, world champion driver. Uh, had an have...
1: interesting race, too.
2: Yeah, it was.
5: It was. Yeah. That's the same Hamilton that Steph was watching, yeah?
3: I think so. Okay. Mm. Uh oh wait. Mm. <laughs> Alexander Hamilton from like the late seventeen hundreds <laughs> to early 1800s. That's him.
2: Yeah, he yeah. drives a Mercedes yeah. uh One of the F- founding fathers
3: of the United States of America, first <laughs> Secretary of the Treasury. <laughs> Definitely same guy.
2: Yeah, no, not the same guy. Oh well.
1: Um
3: killed in a duel by Aaron Burr. No, not the same mm. guy. Really?
1: No. Because I think for some reason, strangely decided to go back to the UK to drive cars. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. The
2: Formula One guy, I think he's still alive. So that's not the same (laughs) guy.
1: Definitely not the same guy. Yeah.
5: Still uh, a great race that Hamilton had uh, in the theater.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's still going even. Um, Let's do this. Let's knock out our um, coffee fund. Uh, cadre acknowledgement, and then uh, we'll uh, start with a little issue that we talked about a couple of episodes ago that we want to kind of cover again because we have some new information regarding that. So let me hit this button right here. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea.
5: I love the APG community,
2: coffee and tea, and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, The Coffee Fun, The Java Jive, sung by Jeff Smith. That is the way that you can become involved in our show uh, financially. So if you have the financial resources to do this, Uh, Please check out the Coffee Fund and become part of our Coffee Fund cadre. And you can find out information about it on airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. Since the last show, we have a new Classic Fund contributor. And his name is, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this, Wigner Gwensan. I'm not sure what country Wigner is from. But thank you, sir, for uh, signing up for the Coffee Fund Classic Method, a recurring donator. We do appreciate that. And another way to do it is become a patron via Patreon.com. And since the last episode, we have a new producer, Dan Keen. Welcome, Dan. And thank you for becoming a patron of our show. Again, if you want to learn more about how you can become involved in the Coffee Fund cadre, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. Now, as I mentioned before we did the Coffee Fund, uh, we talked about something. uh, I believe Alex sent us some audio feedback on Episode 345, and he posed a question regarding a situation that he Encountered in a Northwest Alabama airport, a small Class E uh, non-towered airport at night. And you know what? I think that this piece of audio feedback is going to recap this nicely. And this is from our good friend, Jim Howard. And let's hear from Jim.
7: Hello, APG crew and community. This is Jim Howard. And I have a comment on APG 345 concerning Alex's question about proper traffic pattern behavior at uncontrolled airports. First, let's review Alex's question.
8: Hey, good afternoon. This is Alex from Northwest Alabama. Um, I was doing some PPL training last night, returning to my home field after a night cross-country flight with my instructor. Now, this is a, a very small Class E airport. Um, and a, a small regional airline operates out of this airport. Um, and as I was making my, uh, my calls as I was returning at about 10 miles out, I noticed one of the pilots from this, this airline uh, was calling out a right base and then a right final for a certain runway when um, all of the traffic for all of the runways at this air, airport uh, is always left traffic.
7: I felt like the panelists discussion after his question wandered slightly off the beaten path for this common issue. The answer is that if you're in a class G or E uncontrolled airport and one pilot is flying a right traffic and the other is flying a left traffic, one of the pilots is violating FAR 91.126 paragraph B, direction of turns. Basically what that says is you can make only left turns in a traffic pattern unless the airport is a, has a designated right traffic pattern, which is indicated by the letters Romeo Papa on a VFR chart, or you can look in what's the formerly known as the airport facilities directory and now known as the chart supplement for that airport. That will have the correct pattern information. The other thing that was said that is absolutely incorrect was that a straight-in airplane has priority over all other traffic. That is completely wrong. I won't go down the rabbit hole of -of right-of-way rules, but I suggest you read those. But do not think that if you're on a straight-in, everyone has to get out of your way because that is not true. I would also encourage particularly student pilots or pilots reviewing for a flight review or just because they want to the latest information on operating in uncontrolled airports, that they review FAA Advisory Circular 90-66B. 90-66B was added fairly recently because the information in the uh, Airman's Information Manual and the FARs themselves really don't cover everything that happens in the real world. So this Advisory Circular is really, really great for telling you how to enter traffic patterns and how to behave in a traffic pattern. So I hope that helps a little bit. And I know I'm merely a a navigator at heart, but, and I hate to contradict a a real professional pilot, but in this case, I really feel like just turn left in the traffic pattern, unless it's an RP, right prep pattern, then turn right in the traffic pattern and you'll be just fine. Let me also mention that if you're approaching, an a straight in approach to an uncontrolled airport, that's fine. But right-of-way rules still apply. You can't just barge in front of somebody turning base to final, for example. I really appreciate all the hard work that goes into APG by the crew. And I want to thank you guys for that. This is Jim Howard in Texas. Oh, sure. Compliment us at the very
2: end of all that. Thanks, Jim.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was cruel.
2: No, really, Jim. Thank you for... um, for, for that audio feedback. Now, you know, I received this and I I read the, a couple of the links that he sent and, and I'm thinking, you know, but I still in my head, I'm thinking this is not cut and dry in in my opinion. And I think that um, there's more to this and I'm thinking, why didn't I ask um, a couple, three people that we all know very well who also do aviation podcasts. One, our uh, good friend Brandon Gonzalez, he does podcasting on a plane. He is uh, both a licensed pilot and also an air traffic controller. And we know a couple of folks uh, that do the show Opposing Bases, Air Traffic Talk, uh, RH and AG. And again, both of them, pilots and air traffic controllers. And I'm thinking maybe I should have asked them to begin with to help us answer this question. So I, I posed the question to them and said, uh, what do you think? Um, did we go wrong here? And uh, if so, how? And uh, maybe you can shed some light on this whole thing. So let's start with um, the feedback that we got from Brandon, again, uh, podcasting on a plane. And uh, here we go.
8: Take it away, Brandon. Hey, Captain Jeff and the crew and the APG community. This is Brandon here, podcasting on a plane and. I wanted to have a little audio feedback here in reference to uh, Alex's question, the one about the traffic pattern with the uh, regional plane inbound from episode 345. And without, you know, recreating the whole event and without ATC to go by, this is obviously just opinion and conjecture. But it's a really good question that he asked and to even give an opinion on it, I have to wear my CFI hat and my turbine pilot hat and my ATC hat all at the same time. When I heard the situation in uh, the audio feedback, and then uh, the added extra information that Captain Jeff provided in our email side conversation, my first gut reaction is that this is just an airliner boiling down their visual approach to simple pattern leg calls on a CTAF. And there's a chance that he was getting vectored for an ILS too, we don't really know. But as I'm about to discuss, it probably wouldn't really matter anyway. But that's all. So anyway, I did some digging, and it looks like there are three straight-in approaches to runway 29 and Muscle Shoals. So vectors to a straight-in final, is a reasonable scenario to examine uh, as is a visual approach either way though a jet making a visual approach from the northwest is more or less going to be flying an effective right pattern for runway 29 but that's it they aren't pattern traffic and at this point they probably are going the extra mile in making these calls at all if they're getting vectored for an ils i mean technically all they really need to do is make a call when they join the final that they're on frequency and making a straight in and that's pretty much that we don't really know in this story how far out they are from the airport but Assuming they're getting vectored to the ILS, let's call it maybe four or five miles wide downwind and maybe two to 4,000 feet AGL. Had they not been making traffic calls, you never would have known that they were there in the first place. You would have just heard their initial call that they were on the ILS, right? So if the pilots were receiving vectors on the approach frequency and then also going above and beyond to make CTAF calls at the same time, I'd say that uh, no, what they were doing was not at all dangerous or contrary to any regulation, but uh, instead is actually a commendable effort To communicate their presence and their intentions to an airport that's full of airplanes that are probably a bunch slower. But as for the visual approach scenario, which is probably the more likely of the two, I want to start by saying that while there are exceptions to many rules, there aren't any scheduled air carriers that I know of that are allowed to just cancel IFR and proceed VFR to a non towered airport at night. And now uh, that Alex is finishing up his private training and getting into the instrument stuff, He's about to learn a whole new perspective on this stuff. And as he's gonna soon find out, the visual approach is often a misunderstood procedure. So let me explain. If the aircraft in question is on a legitimate visual approach, we can presume that they've already been cleared for a visual by the radar controller before they even checked in on the CTAF in the first place. And assuming that they're on a visual, they're still an IFR aircraft though, just on a visual approach. And because they're in VMC, they can save a little time and money. But don't ever confuse that with a VFR aircraft in the pattern at the airport, or even just a run-of-the-mill VFR arrival of any kind, there's still an IFR airplane on a type of approach. It's just one where you can't touch a cloud and there isn't a published missed approach segment in case you don't see the runway, but that doesn't matter because you had to see it before you were cleared for the approach, but whatever, I digress. In my opinion, an IFR air carrier aircraft on a visual approach would not be subject to flying the entire suggested local VFR traffic pattern. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like if they were Anyway, all of the VFR pattern legs and suggested entries, recommended radio calls, etc. at non-towered airports are so that there's an organized flow around the airfield. And so that everybody's doing predictable stuff in a predictable way so that pilots can separate themselves since there's no tower to do it for them. And never forget that there can always be someone there not equipped with or using a radio at all. And unfortunately, well, that's perfectly legal. So to Captain Jeff's funny comment about the America airports being kind of like cowboy country... Uh, that's kind of how it feels sometimes at non-towered airports. And believe me, I know I've flown both visuals and straight in instrument procedures to non-towered airports in the Meridian turboprop that I fly in just the last couple weeks. And believe me, I was on high alert each time for sure. But the guys in the air carrier aircraft, they're not the ones making it that way at all. And from what I can figure out from the information given, it seems like if anything, they were actually going well above and beyond for safety. Anyway, that's, that's my two cents. But I love the lively discussion you guys had on it. There was a ton of good stuff in there. And I may actually have some more future feedback for Nick and Dana too. But I really appreciate you guys for asking me to weigh in on the issue. It's always an honor to participate in the show in any way I can. Thanks guys. Good day. Thanks,
2: Brandon, for the feedback, the audio feedback also. And uh, we we actually have all these guys in the chat room with us right now. It's a very lively discussion. This, this
3: is great. I'm really loving this. Yeah. So if you're I think you can actually go back and watch the video and see the chats as they or the mm-hmm. uh, comments as they happen. So um, if you're at all interested in that, it's
2: it's it's good stuff. You can always do that uh, because I always put a link to the uh, YouTube video, which is the raw version of all this. Um, And uh, usually most of what we have in the audio only version is what we have in the video, but sometimes we have a little bit extra for you, but uh, it's always a a fun thing to uh, go and look at the video and see what's happening in the chat room. And so RH uh, part, uh, one of the hosts of the Opposing Bases uh, Aviation Talk Podcast. I hope I got that right. Air Talk.
3: Opposing opposing Bases. Opposing uh, Bases. There? Air
2: Talk something or other. Shoot. Um, oh, here it is. Air Traffic Talk. There we go. There you go. Uh, that's opposingbases.com. RH uh, got back to me right away with um, text feedback. And uh, he went, and basically, it's astonishing to me that uh, basically what RH said is exactly what we just heard from Brandon. I mean, almost exactly the same. And then uh, RH also added, he said that he went out for a run and, and listened to it again and started thinking about it a little bit more. He he uh, quoted from, um, I'm not sure what manual this is from. Uh, he'll tell me because uh, he's in the chat room right now. Um, landing uh, aircraft while on final approach to land or while landing have the right of way. Okay, He's talking about the issue about right of way. Uh, on fi- Aircraft while on final approach to land or while landing have the right-of-way over another aircraft or flight operating on the surface, except that they shall not take advantage of this rule to force an aircraft off the runway surface which has already landed and is attempting to make way for an aircraft on final approach. When two or more aircraft are approaching an airport for the purpose of landing, the aircraft at the lower altitude has the right-of-way, but it shall not take advantage of this rule to cut in front of another, which is on final approach to land, or to overtake that aircraft. The right-of-way is not black and white. The jet could have been, because now he's talking about our situation, the jet could have been at the same altitude as the prop in left traffic. Who goes first? The pilots should be communicating this on frequency to avoid the development of a dangerous situation. So communication is definitely important. And the RH continues. Also, I want to emphasize that even though the crew was announcing their position using downwind base final phraseology, I think their wide approach should be considered a setup for a straight in, not necessarily a right traffic pattern. And again, this, as you can see, all of this is kind of grayish stuff. It's not black and white. Um, and uh, let's see, he continues, the jet arrival may have arrived on final at the same point in space that they had taken vectors for the ILS. So the type of approach is uh, irrelevant in my opinion. When ATC sent the jet to advisories, the crew was responsible for their own traffic avoidance and the use of CTAF should have resolved what Alex describes as a dangerous situation. And then just to throw a little bit more into it before I let everybody else put in their two cents, uh, I would like to, well, we do have some more audio feedback from Nick in uh, Wichita, but before we hear from Nick um, the Acme airlines has some guidance for us and Dana and I do on occasion, um, end up in a situation where we fly into places that may have a tower that's not operating because perhaps we are flying a very late flight into an airport and the tower is closed at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. And perhaps we're running late and we're getting in after that time. Uh, also for me, Most of the time, I encounter a no tower or non tower operation is the first flight of the day before the tower is open. But generally, it works out that by the time we're ready for takeoff, the tower's open and we get clearance for takeoff, um, you know, in those situations from tower. Uh, But um, the times that we do end up going into places such as Augusta, Georgia, that I'm thinking of uh, right off the top of my head, um, and let's see, uh, uh, Panama City, uh, KECP, um, there are times that we end up flying approaches at night into uh, non-towered operations. And we do have specific guidance at Acme Airlines regarding what we should do and considerations. Now, again, this is in our operation specifications, our ops specs. And Most of this is not regulatory in nature. It's just like we really strongly advise that you do this. And one of the things they talk about is that if you're coming into an airport and it's VMC, Visual Meteorological Conditions, and uh, there is a possibility that there might be some VFR traffic there, you may consider uh, entering a standard traffic pattern a standard traffic pattern entry. And it says often proves to be safer uh, to plan and execute than a straight in pattern entry. But of course, if we are flying, we're under radar control, we are cleared for a visual approach. We can do that from whichever way we're approaching the airport and the visual approach. Don't confuse that with VFR operations and a VFR pattern. I think that Brandon and RH made that clear. Those are two separate things. And a visual approach, even though you're navigating um, visually to the airport, doesn't mean that you're on a VFR approach. You are on actually an IFR approach. It's a, it's, an, it's sort of like an instrument approach, but you're on an IFR flight plan, I guess I should say more properly. So we do have some guidance regarding that. Um, the other thing I wanted to make a point about, because I've really been thinking about this a lot the last few days, is that. If we go into an airport, Dana, you go into uh, um, Northwest Arkansas Regional Airport, they have parallel runways, and it's at night. The tower is closed because they don't have a 24-7 operation. Uh, what is the traffic pattern? Um, you know, what, what's what is it a left traffic pattern or a right traffic pattern? How do we know that?
4: Oh, well, on our publications and information, we actually don't have that information. No, we don't. And, you know, it's 1,500 feet is above field elevation. I'm not
2: talking about the altitude. The I'm talking about the actual. directory. No, we don't have that. They nope. don't give that. We don't have that information. You
3: don't have that information at all. That's available to all pilots all the time.
2: We That's not part of our, our publications in our kit. Our, um, Segmented kit. circle.
1: You don't have a sectional either?
2: No. Well, we do have on our EFB, we have a sectional, but again, so I'm just using that as an example. I know that the standard is left hand traffic but there, left
3: are, hand, but there are exceptions there it are exceptions right to hand. it and
2: i wonder, i if it's the right here.
1: pattern it's noted on the sectional. i've
2: never f- but i i know but we, you know sectionals are not something that because we're operating ifr and it's very rare thing that we come into a place and we cancel ifr and we enter a vfr pattern and well, again, honestly
4: jeff with with our our current technology that we have we do have the the ability to pull vfr charts
2: i know and I've, I've looked that- at those in the last two days, and I'm saying I have not found any – maybe I have just haven't found one yet that shows says anything about a right-hand pattern um, in anything that I've been able to find.
4: You have to
1: look at the airport symbol on the VFR chart. No, there's actually below it. It'll say RP and the runway number that's yep. designated right traffic.
2: Okay. Well, you can see this is something that we very rarely ever
1: my, have my to field think about. That pops to mind if you want to look at one. It's Fox Delta Kilo, but they, okay. they have on the chart
2: okay so anyway my point is that you you hear from the air traffic controllers who are also pilots how this is they thought what this regional carrier did going into muscle shoals that night was not dangerous and it was not uncommon and it was not unsafe um so um Again, I think the problem is that we're operating in completely different environments. And most of the time, we're going to operate under IFR until we land. And then we're going to cancel once we're on the ground, either through flight service or uh, an ATC frequency or even by telephone.
3: So can I throw one more unusual yeah. situation into the mix? And this is just to to put it out there. I'm not saying... Uh, what anyone would do, but just something to think about because it is something that is, as far as I know, legal and potentially dangerous, but probably not encountered very often. Um, if you are at a Class G airport or flying into a Class G airport, um, particularly on an instrument approach, which can be done, non precision approaches, um, and you arrive in the uh, vicinity of the airport, it is entirely possible that you can encounter VFR traffic. Because the cloud requirement or the cloud clearance requirements there are different, so you could have someone who is um, basically just flying around in one mile visibility at their Class G airport in the pattern, and you can break out of the clouds with that one mile visibility and be confronted with pa- with a uh, traffic in the pattern there. So just be aware of that if you're ever in that unlikely situation. So.
4: Yeah, but I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the smaller carriers are more the regional
3: unlikely. Population. To be a air, you know, air carrier that's doing right. that at a Class G airport, but I'm just saying for all the other uh, instrument pilots out there, just a scenario to potentially be aware of. Yeah. So definitely make sure you're on the, the CTAF and you're talking and uh, have as good of situational awareness as you can possibly get.
2: And then Brandon made the point that, um, you know, that they were going above and beyond to make uh, self-announced uh, position reports on the CTAF. And at Acme Airlines, that's not... Above and beyond. That's what they expect us to do. So if we're operating to an airport that doesn't have an operating tower, we are required by our own company policy to uh, definitely monitor the CTAF frequency, um, you know, four or five minutes uh, out, uh, 35 miles or more out, and also to make uh, reports just as if we were, you know, flying a VFR pattern. When, to totally so honest, let everybody we, know, we run into happened.
1: problems like this at my home field, even the, even without being a, a Class G airport, because we're right next to the SFRA. So traffic coming out from that pattern, it's usually not air carrier, but traffic coming out will often get handed to the tower, even when the tower is operating two miles from the runway. So they'll they'll be coming onto the frequency when they're, you know, they're turning onto final short final relatively, and they're and they're coming onto the tower frequency, and nobody else knew they were coming.
2: Yeah. You just have to make, you know, that's the, the essential key ingredient to all of this is just to, to communicate and to let everybody know where you are, what your intention is. And if there is a potential conflict that you work that out with whatever the conflict could possibly be there. Exactly, um, And, uh, and just understand that if you're a VFR operator and a, uh, air carrier comes into your airport, um, they are Probably not likely to enter your VFR pattern and get sequenced behind you and all that kind of stuff. They're probably going to fly a straight-in approach or something that looks sort of like a straight-in approach to the the runway because that's just the way we do things in our world.
4: Which I find interesting, Jeff, because you know one of the things talked about there is the aircraft that's lower has the right of way,
0: mm-hmm.
4: and not to obviously abuse the situation, but. Right. More than likely, straight in approach, especially if you shoot an ILS or an instrument approach, generally speaking, you're going to be on the lower altitude, further out than you would be in the traffic pattern. So, um, what I said uh, the other day on, on the last show, um, generally speaking, the aircraft on final is going to have the right away because mm-hmm. it's generally going to be lower. Um, but you, you, there's no hard written rule. That's correct. I would absolutely agree with that. If a guy is Twenty miles out on, on final approach and makes a call, even 10 miles out and says, "I'm on final approach." Well, you know obviously there's, there's no conflict there. It's when the aircraft is close into the airport, the guy that's on final is going to have it right away because they're generally going to be at a lower altitude, and we're talking the air carrier, so yeah, but know, let's
2: make sure that we understand that everybody understands it's specifically the one that's at the lower altitude has lower the altitude that's right correct. So let's don't throw in the straight in and final approach there. But I feel like you hit
1: on something important there, Jeff, which is that you know it's a training thing to some degree. The air carriers are not likely to be comfortable and familiar to the same degree with the traffic pattern operations. And similarly, you know, the VFR. I mean, I think my VFR training was probably better than average, but that wasn't something that we were specifically had uh, pointed out to us. It wasn't something we had addressed specifically that you know someone coming in IFR isn't necessarily on the frequency until too late. I, I learned it, you know de facto kind of when it happened, but it wasn't something that, that we were made aware of. And that's, that's at a field where it happens a lot. So it's, I think that's probably a whole in basic training for a lot of people.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I came from a background where I had very little exposure to VFR flying, uh, just a handful of hours before I was trained by the U S military and our world is all IFR. And then I've been with, an air carrier for almost 30 years. And again, 99.9% of the time we're operating under instrument flight rules. And so this air, this particular environment that we're talking about here, whoops, I hit my lampshade, uh, is, uh, is just something that we don't really know. uh, Some of us don't know a heck of a lot about, and we're not used to this environment at all. Now, Dana knows more about it because he kind of grew up in that world. Um, that's true. Um, finally, uh, Nick from Wichita, uh, just so we're going to flog the dead horse here. So uh, another piece of audio feedback regarding this
0: whole thing. Hi, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. This is Nick from Wichita. And uh, I thought I'd uh, send in a brief little uh, tidbit of feedback regarding uh, Alex's question in uh, episode 345. Um, he, he was asking about, uh, uncontrolled airport, um, traffic pattern usage, basically. And, uh, a while back, uh, maybe six months ago or so, I sent in some uh, feedback that was a little longer and a little wordier uh, that was based on um, Advisory Circular 90.66B. Uh, that gives all of the um, things you should do if you're operating in and out of um, uncontrolled airports, but uh, things that are not regulatory. Uh, just one interesting thing I wanted to note, and I don't think anybody mentioned it um in the episode when they were responding to Alex is that, uh, almost everything regarding uncontrolled airspace operation is, uh, advisory, uh, not regulatory. So when you talk about how you enter a pattern, um, if you're using a radio, um, stuff like that, the FAA says, this is what you should do, but you don't have to do it. That's why, um, you're allowed to enter the traffic pattern on a 45 or cross over the midfield or even do a straight in approach if you'd like. Um, However, the one thing interestingly uh, which I think Alex was actually asking about specifically, the one thing that is regulatory in nature is um, the direction of the traffic pattern. So um, FAR part 91, uh, 126, and 127 kind of covers this for class e and g if you want to look it up but basically what it says is um part uh 91.126 which covers uh, class g airspace um says you know if you're operating in the vicinity of uh a class g airspace all turns must be made to the left unless airport displays uh light signs or visual markings indicating turns should be made to the right which is like a segmented circle or something on the ground i've never actually used that however um It is, uh, that is something that's uh, published in on charts, VFR charts and AFDs and stuff like that. uh, If an airport is right traffic, so in the United States, any airport that you go to, you assume it's left traffic, and uh, if it's right traffic, it's published on the chart. Uh, They do that for uh, noise abatement. If uh, you know there's a noise sensitive area on one side of the airport, they do that if two airports are close together, they'll put the traffic patterns going in opposite directions to give them more separation um but that was that is one thing that's interesting and if you go on to the next part 91.127 which is class e airspace which is actually what alex was uh flying in uh it uh it basically says um y- it basically says uh you know unless otheri- otherwise required by part 93 of this chapter um each person operating in the vicinity of class e airspace must comply with the requirements of 91-126, um, so it does say unless otherwise authorized required by ATC facility. Uh, however, I find it highly unlikely that uh, even a jet on a instrument approach uh, under the control of a uh, a center or a uh, some sort of ATC facility would get cleared to fly right hand pattern at an airport where everybody's expecting left hand traffic because. All of the traffic operating their VFR has uh, no requirement and really not even any expectation to be uh, listening to the ATC facilities and expecting that uh, opposite direction traffic. Which, obviously, if you're using the common traffic advisory frequency, not a big deal. But like uh, Dana mentioned, uh, radios aren't required. So you could have a person out there flying the appropriate left-hand pattern without a radio and not being aware of that uh, jet coming in in the right-hand traffic. So uh, I just thought I'd toss that in there. And uh, mention briefly at the end, this is more of a question, follow-up question to, to Captain Nick and his, um, I don't know, his ideology on uh, visual approaches, I guess. I, I'm a VFR pilot working on my instrument rating, uh, so I don't know all the intricacies of um, positive control on an approach if you're a visual flight, if you're a visual approach versus a, all the different types of instrument approaches. Um, but I, I did think that the controllers uh, are responsible for uh, separation, and I guess the reason I and I don't I can't actually point to a rule or anything for that. But I guess the reason that I always thought that was, uh, you know, uh, whenever I'm flying around VFR and I enter controlled airspace, uh, they'll tell me, uh, you know, they'll point out or mention any aircraft near me or any aircraft that I'm supposed to follow, and uh, once I respond with a uh, positive uh, affirmation that I've uh, seen, I have the airplane in sight, or I've seen the airplane that they're referring to, oftentimes they'll come back to me and they'll say, you know, follow, you know, the 172 ahead of you, maintain visual separation, number two to landing or whatever. And, and my experience or my understanding, I guess, was just that um, as I fly into that controlled airspace, I'm I'm expecting the controller. Obviously, I'm looking around still maintaining visual flight rules. So I'm seeing and avoiding, but at the same time, same time, I still have some feeling of or some expectation of the controller uh, controlling that airspace, providing me uh, separation, some level of separation, uh, maybe until I uh, am pointed out another aircraft and uh, verify that I've seen him. And at that point, you know, they tell me to maintain visual separation. And to me, that that seems like at that point, the onus has shifted from the controller onto myself. Uh, so I just, I guess mostly for Dana and Steph, uh, since they're probably have a little more VFR experience than the other two. But uh, Jeff and Nick too, I'd be curious if uh, you're feeling on that, if that if that's actually the case or if I'm kind of uh, misunderstood in what I'm, what I'm thinking there. So um, thanks for the great show and hope to hear from you guys soon. Thank you, Nick. Uh,
2: and speaking of that point, the last point that you made uh, regarding visual approaches, and I think this is something that Nick, you may not be aware of, and and I may not have been aware of it either, until doing some research uh, regarding this whole situation and visual approaches and such. In the Airman's Information Manual, AIM, uh, it talks about visual approaches. Again, the, these are conducted on IFR flight plans and authorize a pilot to proceed visually and clear of clouds to the airport. And the there's paragraph uh, five. Dash 4 dash 23, uh, letter D, separation responsibilities. If the pilot has the airport in sight but cannot see the aircraft to be followed, ATC may clear the aircraft for a visual approach. However, ATC retains both separation and wake vortex separation responsibility. When visually following a preceding aircraft, acceptance of the visual approach clearance uh, constitutes acceptance of pilot responsibility for maintaining a safe approach interval and adequate wake turbulence separation. So, uh, Dana and I hear this a lot when we're flying into airports such as Atlanta, et cetera. The controller will say, Do you have, you know, traffic is two o'clock, you know, it's a 757, blah, blah, blah. Do you have the traffic or the airport in sight? Now, if you say, I usually say, I have both uh, or both of them. Um, but uh, if you uh, say that you have the preceding aircraft in sight, then uh, separation and wake turbulence avoidance is on you. And I know that's something that Nick does not like. But if you say you have the airport in sight, but you do not acknowledge that you have the preceding aircraft in sight, air traffic control still has the responsibility to uh, keep you separated and give you wake turbulence uh, separation as well. So I don't know if you knew that uh, little wrinkle in the whole way visual approaches are. Uh, no, I, I didn't, out.
5: Jeff. Uh, and I must admit the, the complexity of the discussion tonight has left me both bemused and slightly concerned because the intricacies of um, the diffi- and the difficulties of flying in this kind of mixed environment um, has me as a foreigner coming to this country only occasionally and uh, only would be very rarely mixing in this traffic. The fact that uh, you guys can't really uh, come to a clear conclusion as to what's right and what's wrong makes me, as a visitor to the country, flying a 300 ton airplane going, Well, I'm trying to pole around this airplane, this country, and you guys seem to be a little bit in doubt as to what's going on. How, what kind of chance does that leave me to know where the priorities are? Um, because, you know, um, it's, it's not simple, is it? It doesn't seem to be straightforward.
4: Yeah, but Nick, you know, when when you say you're coming into this country, uh, of all the airports you fly into, every single one of them is class bravo.
5: Well, yeah, but some of our diversions may not be.
4: Right, and be and what's more, if Charlie I have a problem and I have to go
5: into, now admittedly if I've got a problem, I'll probably declare an emergency and. And I'll have priority over everyone, I would hope. Everyone would acknowledge that. But I might well end up uh, on a diversion or perhaps uh, asked on a charter to go into an airfield that's not. So you're right. Most, the great majority of the time, I'm flying into an airfield of an equivalent uh, stature to the one that I would normally operate in in the rest of the world. But every now and again, you know, I don't want to fall foul uh, just on the, the one occasion when I end up at uh, an effort where I'm, I'm ending up mixing with visual traffic and really have no clear understanding because there is no clear, clearly defined set of rules as to who has priority.
2: And you're right. Uh, it is <laughs> a lot of uh, gray area, for sure. And I think that um, a lot of this is based upon you know, the fact that Everybody out there should be responsible for making sure they're con- conducting their flights safely. And in all these cases, it's a visual environment where see and avoid is paramount. And uh, it's not always perfect, but uh, it works out pretty well most of the time.
4: Yeah, and, and, and that's, and that's part, of, part of the whole conversation, Jeff. It really comes down to if you're in a visual airport, you know, you have to have some responsibility and that is that we are all trained to a certain level that the the FAA requires for us to to be certified as pilots. So thus we're very well aware of the circumstances when we fly visual uh, approaches, whether it be a a commercial carrier or if you're in a a, a traffic pattern flying VFR rules. um, You know, you are mixing apples with oranges here, IFR rules, VFR rules, and, and, and uh, Robert um, alluded to it earlier, I mean, listen, as a primary student, you're not being taught what instrument rules are, what instrument flight conditions are like, what an instrument approach is. It's pretty much Chinese for a lot of people that are flying as a VFR uh, aircraft in a traffic pattern, so they don't know when somebody is, when somebody is doing a, 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 an approach. Of you know whether it be an ILS or VOR or an NDB or whatever else it is, or these days a GPS approach. So the, the moral of the story is is, is exactly what you just said. It, it comes down to being prudent as pilots as we're trained, and that is I think the FAA leaves a gray area here. Um because the simple fact is is that it is up for interpretation. It's up for the fact that we all communicate. And let's face it, how many we we almost never talk about this because it doesn't very happen happen very often. That is, there are very few collisions uh with VFR aircraft in the sky because you know it doesn't it, it does happen, it, it it has happened, but it is not a very common occurrence because what's the first thing the flight instructor teaches you Robert they teach you to do clearing turn always always clearing always looking always scanning you don't spend time inside the I- the airplane the instruments I think it's was it three to one it's three seconds out one second in or something similar to that and it, it that's going back um you know a few years on me on that but <clears throat> you know the the moral of the story is you're outside scanning all the time under under visual rules so you know we cannot confuse what a visual approach is because that as jeff has said it is an instrument approach versus a vfr aircraft flying in a pattern so you know that that pretty much puts an end to that i
2: think now when we were talking about earlier dana you said we and and again this is something that has been bothering me the last day or two when i've been doing all this uh research Is that? uh, And I think Mark Lebrowski in the chat room said, I assumed that KCEU in Clemson was a left-hand pattern when I flew there last week. Good thing I was listening to the CTAF from way out and realized it's a right-hand pattern. I won't make that mistake again. So while you all were talking, I looked in in, uh, my uh, Jeppesen Flight Deck Pro app and under the VFR section, which is supposed to be a sectional, right? I mean, that's the only sectional we have available to us, right, Dana? That's correct. Okay. So I looked up KCEU, and I'm looking at it right now on my EFB, and I see, and I've blown it all the way up. I've zoomed right on in, and I've clicked on the Clemson, South Carolina, Oconee County Regional Airport, K-Charlie Echo Uniform, and I don't see anything here, anything, anywhere that talks about the traffic pattern. It says the... The lat long. It says the elevation. It says uh, plus five UTC. Daylight savings observed. Runways. I'll click on that. Runways. It tells me it's a five thousand by one hundred foot runway, asphalt. Nothing about the pattern.
4: Jeff, because it's very, it's a very simple answer. If it's a normal pattern, traffic pattern, it's going to be a left hand pattern.
2: It's not going to be. But Mark said it's a right. It's a right hand traffic pattern though, Mark. It's a right hand hand traffic
1: pattern on runway seven. So if you look at the sectional, I'm not looking at the uh, AFD or now the chart supplement. I'm looking at the sectional. But if you look at the sectional, normally most airports have three lines on the sectional. They have the name and the uh, three-letter abbreviation. Then they have the ASOS or the ATIS or whatever the information channel is. Then they have their elevation and their lighting and that line with the CTAF or tower frequency. And then the fourth line, if it exists, is going to say RP and one or more numbers of a runway. In this case, it does. It says a Coney County regional CEO. I won't read out the frequencies and everything, but it says RP7. And you, you're saying you don't have that on your chart? None of that. So, th- Okay. So mm-hmm. then they've removed part of the data that's actually on the VFR sectional from what you're looking at there. Right. Yeah. It's Interesting. It's
2: clearly on my chart. So that's what I'm saying. I'm going into a place. Well, Again, I hit the lampshade. Sorry. I'm going into a place at night and it's after tower is closed. I wasn't planning on getting there that late, but um, I – how do I know what if it is a non-standard pattern?
1: Uh, yeah, I
3: guess I'm just really surprised that you don't have um, the what was it the chart supplement that they're calling it now?
1: No, well, it's a section. I mean, I'm looking at the. I know section it's a, I know it's a there, sectional, but, yeah, but I mean, yeah.
3: if you're if you're so it, well, perhaps it doesn't make sense for them to have all of that
1: information, um, but I would think that the
3: chart supplement would be important
1: anyway to have. I would yeah. agree. I mean, this is going to be an unpopular statement, and that we've had it's been unpopular before. But I, this falls into the category, kind of to me, to some degree, of the notum problem. There's so much information that the pilots yep. are responsible for knowing. You're, I mean, you're expected, you're responsible for knowing what's on the VFR sectional, even if it's not being given to you. But it's how can you possibly know everything for every flight you take? It's hard enough for Steph or I doing a you know hour and a half flight in a at 100 knots, let alone something that like you guys are flying.
2: Right now, granted. Um, that the situation that we're going to encounter as uh, an airport that is very small non towered, and it's going to have a non-standard traffic pattern. And the fact that we would even consider joining the VFR pattern at all to begin with is very, very remote, but I'm still saying that it's a possibility and I would like to know this information. I don't have it available. Yeah, yeah, I, I think saying that's we, taken we out of your information. You,
3: you don't have that information.
2: Yeah.
4: So well, I mean, and, and, and let's, let's, let's face it, Jeff. The charts that we have, all right, on our, our uh, um, iPad here are not true sectionals. Right. They are not yeah, the, in, yep the in the, the slightest. Charts? They are not, no. The, I mean, no, they're, they're not actual sectionals. They are okay. not actual VFR sectionals over, because we don't over ever… Shoulder we here, don't, it looks a lot as, like a modified as, Garmin chart, but it's yeah, not it's, anywhere it, near it, everything. It, it, it's, a, it's basically a VFR map is mm-hmm. really what it is. It just gives you… You know, it gives you basic information where the lakes are, where the roadways are, where the towns are, where an airport happens to be. Um, so, you know, it's not a true VFR chart as much as it's just VFR information. We're not actually, uh, you know, per, per our SOPs, um, we, unless we're 35 miles within sight of an airport visually, we can't operate VFR,
2: period. Well, we cannot accept a visual approach unless we're 35 nautical miles from the airport, but that's not, we're not talking about visual approaches. That's an IFR clearance.
4: Correct. But we, we, as we, as an airline cannot operate VFR.
2: Now, if you look at the uh, procedures that we have, it says consideration may be made, must be made as to, uh, it would be safer to enter the VFR pattern. And, um. You know, in other words, that to me that implies canceling IFR when you're right in that
4: ATA. Within well, thirty five uh, miles of the airport. That's correct. But again, thirty five miles. Land. The thirty five
2: miles though, it really that's that's to do with the visual approach. It doesn't say anything about operating VFR. That's visual approach, which well, is an well, IFR procedure.
4: We don't we don't have the technology. Well, we do have technology, but we don't have the charts to be able to fly VFR. It's so what I'm saying is we don't have, we can file and fly IFR all day long because we have all the appropriate charts, procedures, but we do not have the appropriate charts and information to be actually able to fly around VFR. We can vi- do visuals and we can fly a pattern. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you that, you know, I'm looking at the Coney K- Regional CE Ch- Charlie Echo uniform and it does say RP7. Which would be indicative of the fact that it's a right hand pattern for runway seven. But I'm looking at the same thing you're looking at on my, my iPad, and it gives me no information whatsoever. So if I look at this as a captain and I look at this, all right, well, I don't have the information to be able to fly that airport plane at that airport and be able to fly a VFR because under VFR flight rules, not a visual approach, that's different. I don't, I don't have I don't have
1: the ability to legally do that. That's what I'm saying. I really wonder if the sectional is in that somewhere, but buried in a hidden it's layer not. or something. It's not. This is it. This no, is all not. we have. This now, is we all used it. to,
2: uh, when we our flight weather viewer, which was a non-regulatory app, it was a proprietary thing that we had, the earliest version of it. Uh, actually, there was a way for us to to see the the sectionals, but again, it was just kind of a gee whiz If that's there, if you want to use it, but it wasn't a requirement for us to operate our standard operating procedures.
1: I, that that just, I mean, that's absolutely shocking to me that that's that you don't have access to it in your in your tools. Nope. No, we don't. We don't,
4: and that's and that's what I'm I'm saying is that you know for to be able to navigate legally as a VFR student, you would have to have. A sectional chart, or a whack chart, or or a, a terminal chart, um, to be able to navigate, and we don't have that ability. Yeah, you know, and that's why I think the limitation is 35 miles within the airport. We can legally enter in a traffic pattern, absolutely, but we can't navigate. But
1: you can't fly VFR unless can you can not. see the airport near you're in. that's exactly that's, that's, that's really interesting. We we, we like,
2: got just to be Good. clear on the 35 thing, that only applies to visual approaches, which is visual approaches. a visual So you correct. have to be approach. visual.
1: You have to be able to see the airport. And yeah. so there's a 35-mile maximum. You can't say you see yeah. the airport at 60 miles. But if you right. can see it and you're in 35, you can do it. Exactly. I, I'm still surprised you can do that without a sectional. But, yeah. but that's not –
3: so yeah. we're still talking visual approaches there, which is on an instrument flight, flight right. rules plan, not VFR
2: flying. It's all confusing because we're using a lot of the same terminology, but we're actually <laughs> yeah. talking apples and oranges. The whole, really. the whole concept
1: yeah. of visual approach is confusing as I'll get out to anyone so, who's not an instrument pilot. So, and it's, yeah. you know, As Nick said before, it's it's a weird kind of in-between that we do here.
4: So here's the deal. Term, uh, class E, mm-hmm. which has an instrument approach, and we're flying to an instrument airport. Sure. We can fly to it legally. Yeah.
1: Class yeah. G? Yeah. Technically, I don't think I could fly to it. Yeah, that's that's what I'm wondering is whether you. It I, sounds like you probably. I mean, in an emergency, you can break any rule you want because yes. that's how it works. But exactly. anything but an emergency, it sounds like you couldn't. I don't think so. Not that there are many class golf airports out there that would you know support a mad dog, let alone what he's flying. But yeah.
2: Most class G airports, I think, are, you know, would be
1: very very short well, runway, three thousand feet or less, unless yeah. they're high elevation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. I absolutely agree. So
2: okay, well, I think. This kind of just illustrates uh, that uh, there are still a lot of areas in this world of aviation that um, are, you know, make you scratch your head a little bit. And, you know, and I, I guess, you know, Alex kind of spurred this whole discussion. And I'm glad you did, Alex, uh, and because I've learned a lot in the last couple of days. Uh, thank you for for asking the question. Thank you. Uh, Brandon and RH for participating in your, you know, your professional opinions about what you think about the situation. And I think that, um, this and has been to beneficial Jim as well for the information yes. about from Jim. Uh, also he mentioned the, you know, then it been mentioned several times, 90, the circular, dot Bravo. Oh, yeah. And then a couple of 91 dot something rather other else.
3: 91.125 was the other reference that he was.
2: Okay. Good stuff. And uh, so it's, it's important that we all as aviators uh, be as educated and uh, knowledgeable as we can as, as to as much of this as we can possibly, you know, digest. And uh, the bottom line, of course, though, is just try to run a safe operation as uh, best you can. And communication is so important, you know, letting everybody know where you are and what your intent is. And if there's a conflict, that conflict
1: then work it out. I'll throw something in here just real quick for you guys to think sure. about that it just occurred to me but part 91 deals with non-commercial operations so it's not particularly applicable to you guys flying into small airports. It's it's actually the the regulations for non-commercial small aircraft.
2: Mhm. Right, cuz we're part 121.
1: Well, if mm-hmm. there's something in 121 to override it then what's in 91 certainly doesn't apply to you. Yeah, yeah,
2: I don't think there is anything in 121 that has anything to do with
4: any of this.
1: 91 does apply to 121. Does it? I would I would imagine so.
4: Because we're, we're still operating under the same rules.
1: I mean, don't cloud get me wrong. I mean, cloud cloud Obviously, a lot of the rules apply. You guys probably know this better than I do. But as far as I know, Part 91 is small, non-commercial operations. So I would think that either it's included specifically or it's excluded specifically. And I, I don't know which. I would
3: we need someone who writes these regulations for the FAA. Yeah, right. Please <laughs> send in two cents. Send us some uh, audio uh, feedback. Record straight once and for all. <laughs>
4: exactly. And the reason you know, why I'm saying this is if I'm flying a, a a visual approach, which is an IFR, sure, air, you know, IFR flight plan, which we have established, what what I have to do is maintain proper cloud clearance mm-hmm. per Part 91.
1: Okay. Right. So, well, that, to me, that says that your regulations for 121 say that that part of 91 applies, though. I, and I don't want to, this has been a long thing. I don't want to drag this down another road to talk about forever. And I, I'm thinking right now, what I'm going to probably do is call AOPA. There's a lawyer I know there and ask him. And I'll send yeah, you guys maybe. feedback afterward and see what he says. But um, because I, I'm curious how that actually carries over. But it, it's, and I, I don't know. It just, as far as I knew, 91 was small non commercial.
2: Well, according to uh, RH, Part 91 applies to Part 121 carriers, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I,
4: okay. I, th- I think so, too. And, you know, we can actually fly Part 91.
2: Actually, we do. When we fly, take an airplane ferry, an airplane for a maintenance ferry down to Mexico or whatever, that's a Part 91 operation. Yep. Yeah,
3: Part 91, technically, general operating and flight rules.
2: Yeah. Okay. Not so see is, how clear all this is?
3: 121 is just stuff that's specifically applicable to right.
1: commercial right. and less over-
3: air, <laughs> scheduled region, scheduled air carriers. So regional and major airlines.
4: So SOP and, and, uh, and our air carrier
1: certificate and what we're certified for is, would override anything. Well, right. I was going to say, I suspect anything that's 121 overrides 91. But if there isn't something, then 91 applies it. So it sounds sure. like.
2: I'm so confused. <laughs> okay. okay.
3: Clear as mud. Yes. Yeah, it
2: is. But you know what? I really enjoyed this discussion. It was a good, uh, yeah. Into the minutiae, you know. I know Nick's probably asleep over there, but uh, oh well. He is. Yeah, we'll wake him up. Hey, um, thanks again, everybody, for participating in this discussion. And uh, if if you're the FAA and you have the final guidance, please contact us. All right. And with that, it's time now for the news. Stand by for news. We'll start off with the uh, foremost uh, incident-slash-accident that just occurred, what, yesterday, I believe? Uh, Indonesian Lion Air Flight 610 crashes into the Java Sea with 189 on board. Brand new, pretty much. It was just delivered in August. 737-800-MAX. Registration Papa Kilo Lima Quebec Papa performing Flight 610 from Jakarta to Pangkai Penang in Indonesia with 181 passengers and eight crew was climbing out of Jakarta when the aircraft reached a maximum altitude of about 5,400 feet, then lost height, made radar, uh, lost radar contact about 35 nautical miles northeast of Jakarta over the Java Sea. Rescue services are on their way to the suspected crash site. First ships have reached the crash site and located oil slicks as well as debris from the aircraft, including mobile phones and first body parts. Later in the day, six bodies were recovered. Authorities state there is no hope for survivors, and this was one of the first reports from the Aviation Herald on uh, on Monday. And since then, of course, they've uh, uh, discovered some more uh, body and bodies and debris. Uh, An oil slick was spotted. Uh, The site where the airplane went down, um, the depth of the water is about 30 to 35 meters. Um, Indonesia's Ministry of Transport reported a tugboat saw an aircraft crash into the Java Sea. And uh, on October 30th, which is today, the day we're recording the show, uh, the ministry reported that an unscheduled inspection of Lion Air aircraft has been conducted and indicated there will be sanctions. The nature of the sanctions is being coordinated with the KNKT, which is their National Transportation Safety Committee. A first instruction to inspect all aircraft have already been issued to Lion Air. So, looks like uh, they were concerned about this airline operator, uh, this this operator, and uh, they did an inspection. It doesn't say exactly what they found, but they obviously found something to be concerned about, um, and. Uh, So uh, there was a report that uh, the flight prior to this accident flight the day before, uh, there was an issue with the airplane that um, required that they uh, fly at an altitude of flight level 280, and uh, there was some kind of an uh, altitude indication error or uh, disagreement Something going on with the uh, pedostatic system, it sounds like to me, or some of the computers involved in this. And apparently, uh, the issue was worked on by mechanics, and uh, they said the problem was fixed, and they released the airplane for operations. Um, Our APG community member and good friend and uh, host of Flying and Life podcast, Dispatcher Mike uh, said that uh, he was looking at some of the data on the uh, Flight Radar 24 site, and he said that uh, it looked like the ADSB was showing irregular altitude deviations and high airspeed. The aircraft leveled off somewhere around 5,000 feet, and according to reports requested a return to the field, but they did not make a mayday call. Some tweets uh, that I sent suggest that there was a pedostatic issue on the aircraft with some altimeter disagreement between, uh, being written up. The previous flight had the same altitude discrepancies discrepancies and flew to Jakarta at flight level 280. With the research that I did, RVSM airspace in Jakarta is at flight level 280. There are many MELs that can be applied to a 737 that removes it from reduced vertical separation uh, operations. Overall, the uh, wreckage of the aircraft only consists of small pieces. The ADSB data shows the vertical speed could have been around 30,000 feet per minute in the end, a very sad situation. Now there's also some, um, some images, uh, being circulated on social media and many people have cautioned that these may not be accurate, that they may be faked or Photoshopped regarding the actual page from the aircraft logbook, the write-up from the previous flight, the corrective action, etc. So, uh, again, people are, uh, warning people that this may not be the real deal uh, that may be a faked document, and I don't understand how anybody could do this. Uh, that's just terrible to me. But uh, as far as well, think, putting out something fake you know, like that,
3: well, when stuff like this always happens, there's always a rush. I think any anymore to speculate or have information for news media outlets, and I think that's how some of that ends up coming about, which is horrible. Um, just a quick point of note before you all write in and tell us this in the article. It says. A Boeing 737 800 MAX, it's really the correct terminology is 737 MAX 8. So before you all write in, it says it in the article, which it's fine. Okay. um, Just a small point of correction there. That's all.
2: Okay. 737 MAX MAX 8. 8. There we go.
5: And I'm just going to add a little word of caution there because um, the data that uh, you get on flight radar has to come from the aircraft systems. And if there is a fault uh, in the instrumentation on the aircraft that'll mean that that same fault will be fed across to flight radar 24 and any system any recorder that uses the data may well be getting erroneous data so it's a bit like um, you know you've got an ultimate problem it's not very helpful if a uh, traffic go well our mode Charlie's showing you at 10,000 feet because you know you've got that information available to you in the aircraft and that may well be information that is corrupted um, so uh, you know, uh, saying that flight radar24 or another system uh, indicates that an aircraft is doing a particular height profile and speed profile may of course be just complete you know
6: completely erroneous. that's what I'm saying.
2: All right, very good point. What else is to be said here? It uh, looks like um, if this was indeed some kind of a pedostatic issue and they were getting erroneous, data, airspeed data, speed, uh, altitude data, vertical velocity information, we all should know what pitch attitude and power setting we should set to safely fly the airplane. And if we don't do that, we don't know what that information is, then learn it. Because mm. this is the, I, again, I don't know if this is what happened in this situation. Something else could have happened uh, where they maybe couldn't control the airplane for some reason. Maybe some con- control relied upon data from some of these systems, and it just, you know, there's no way to prevent this from happening. But if it is a situation like Air France 447 and so many others that we've heard about, where if you just go back to the basics, the fundamentals, and you fly the airplane and you set your pitch picture and you set your power setting, you're going to be able to fly the airplane without those instruments. But, again, well, that's just speculation on my part.
4: You know, you and I, Jeff, I mean, we fly an aircraft that is very much a uh, a dinosaur, especially compared to what's available nowadays. And you and I are, are very accustomed to flying the aircraft by hand and being current and you know, flying on a regular basis. I think the technology has come so far with these aircraft that pilots have become more um, managers than they are pilots. So even in the airplane that we fly,
2: Dana, uh, we have flight directors. And I've seen people, (laughs) I've flown with several of them, that the only thing they see is the flight director bars. They don't see the attitude indicator. They don't see that they're are two and a half degrees nose up or five degrees nose up. They see the pitch bar and they see the, uh, you know, the other steering bar
4: that, that is a function of, of, and and by the way, talking about nose up, uh, those that are (laughs) listening to the podcast don't know that Nick just tried to put both the strings up my nose. So anyways, uh, (laughs) I mean, the reality is is, is that we've become a, a, a slave to the technology, really. And we have to look past that. And, and right. I'm not sure, I, I you know, it's becoming more and more of an issue. I mean, near France is a perfect example. I, I We can only speculate on what happened here in Jakarta um, with Lion Air. But, uh, you know, there's another, a couple other instances where it, 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 it's becoming an issue. I mean, you know, we've got to be able to fly the airplane first and manage the technology and, uh, you know, look at what happened in, in San Francisco. I mean, they just, you know, whatever we, we don't need to go. We've gone down that road plenty of times. So the moral of the story is, is that, you know, as we get more into technology, I think we're starting to lose the edge on being able to to aviate, navigate and right. communicate. Aviate is the first thing we need to do. And as a professional pilot, we need to stay up on those things those skills, and know how to fly, as you mentioned, know how to fly, pitch, attitude, and engine setting, period. Mm -hmm. It's basic airmanship.
1: Yeah, regardless of how
2: fancy the airplane is that you're flying. My instructor
1: always put it, fly the plane, not the autopilot. Exactly. The autopilot's a tool, but if you can't fly the plane without it, you certainly shouldn't be flying it with. Correct. Exactly. Couldn't agree with you more.
5: Okay. I'm just saying those talents aren't restricted to people with old-fashioned airplanes.
2: No, they're not. And they should not well, they, be.
4: They certainly shouldn't be,
2: right? Absolutely.
4: And, that, and that's my whole point. It, 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 it should be all aircraft, and you know, it's all this new fadangled technology is useless unless you know how to use the basic thing called flying. If you, you can have all this great technology, and, and we're just becoming managers, we're not become. We're no longer pilots. We need to stay current on our piloting skills. Oh, it's a, I
1: mean, it's okay to be a manager on a flight, but to be a manager, you have to be able to fly without the tech. Like you To be a manager, you have to be a better pilot. It's not; it's the opposite of what people tend to think. Oh, the autopilot will do it. I just need to know enough to get off the ground and get the autopilot on. No, you need to know enough to know when the autopilot's screwing up, and that's harder than just flying the airplane. Correct.
4: In, in even, even on our aircraft, which is an older dinosaur, mm-hmm. which Jeff was just alluding to, is for a long time, all we taught was VNAV. Sure. What about, okay, click the autopilot off, fly the airplane. What does it do when it's an IAS? What does it do in, in vertical speed? What protections do I have? How do, how does everything work? Yeah. I mean, that's, these are things that we need to be continuously thinking about and very much like on the Airbus. I mean, you, you, you get the Airbus and you have all these laws, right, that, that you, know, uh, you know, direct law and... I don't know all the laws, but you need to you know, be able click, to know what it's doing. Click in it all time. off and fly right. the airplane. Understand well, what they are Let's just put that one to bed. The laws don't
5: stop you from flying the airplane like an airplane. Exactly. They do prevent you from turning it upside down, which I don't think any of us would think would be sensible, no. or Whee. overspeeding it to the point where the wings fall off, or underspeeding it to the point where it stalls. No, but that is what the envelope protection does. And uh, apart from that, you can still fly the airplane, uh, even an incredibly advanced airplane, uh,
1: just as basically as you might do a 172. Sure. You just need to know the laws because you need to know if it changes on you.
5: Well, you need to know when the protections aren't there. Exactly. But if you're not going to take the aircraft to an extreme edge of the envelope where you might need intervention, then Then you won't
4: need any of the envelope protections. Fair. And and that's that's. In, in in those protections are there for a very specific reason nick but you know the air france deal right you know the the, the well, laws you, the laws keep didn't apply quoting this
5: one pilot this one pilot who mishandled his aircraft in a gross manner he could have been another pilot in another airplane which had none of these things and he could have done exactly the same thing and yet you wouldn't then be pointing the finger at a sophisticated aircraft with protections and saying, well, it's a problem because there is over-automation in your aircraft. It's not the case at all. It's the fact that what that one aircraft, that one pilot in that one aircraft that night, mishandled his aircraft appallingly, and no one on the flight deck realized what he'd done. So, you know, yeah, I,
4: that's that's exactly mean, I, think we're, I think
3: we're all saying the same thing. That's I think exactly, we're all, my point, all so.
4: exactly my point, are in agreement. Exactly my point. Is that we uh, we have become so dependent upon that technology that we forgot the basic thing and it's called aviation.
5: No, I disagree. I think any pilot who had been perhaps flying any airplane could have mishandled his aircraft if he hadn't been properly trained or he was a poor pilot. I don't okay. just say just because he happened to be sitting on an Airbus that's the reason he did it. No, no I don't
0: think the that's Airbus. That's saying. not what I'm saying. I don't I think that's the argument. That you here.
5: can
4: do it in any airplane. <laughs> Yeah, not that's all what I'm, Nick, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, we're I'm talking about
2: a 737, 737 here in this instance. We, we're so
4: talking about it can be any aircraft. That, what I'm trying to say is the technology has come so far that we've become so dependent on that, that if we don't actually interact with the airplane as a pilot versus being a,
1: a flight manager, that we're losing our skills as pilots. That's all I'm and saying. Ultimately, his point is you have to be able to fly the plane without, without the tech. Or with as little of the tech yeah. as is reasonable. Yeah. And, and, that's what and any saying.
5: pilot can. It doesn't matter what airplane you put yourself in, a exactly. pilot right. will be able to fly the airplane regardless of the technology well, in it. Well, they should be. But the great advantage of having an, an aircraft with sophisticated technology is that for the time you grossly mishandle it, it should step in and prevent you doing it. Now, in the Air France case, that technology wasn't available to him because the flight laws changed. Um, but the fact is that any other situation, it would have done. It would have stopped them from killing everybody on
2: board.
4: I agree. 100%. Yeah. Excellent. But,
2: yes. All right. That's all wrapped up. <laughs> Let's move on to the second item in the uh, folder. Item it's B. on an
4: Airbus problem, by the way. A that's small. What to
2: say. Yeah. It, it, I, I think it doesn't matter whether it's an Airbus or a Boeing or a Mad Dog or whatever. It's the same. It's the but same. Modern issue.
1: airplanes all have tech, but the tech is yeah. a tool, not a crutch. Right. Exactly.
2: Um, A small plane, a very low-tech airplane, I would even say maybe even more of a dinosaur than the airplane that Dana and I fly. Uh,
3: Debatable.
1: Just kidding.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Crashed uh, on the northbound 101 in Agora Hills on Tuesday. That's in California, Southern California. And the fiery wreck shut down both sides of the freeway for hours. The crash was reported around 1.45 p.m. Uh, looks like uh, this uh vintage airplane, which is a trying to scroll down here, what it's is T-6 it? T6 repainted, I T-6. think. Yes, uh, in unusual colors, it looks like it's in a you know, painted with German,
1: um, yeah, it was painted, markings. yeah, it was part of a squadron yeah, that were painted as, as a bunch of international aircraft, T-6. but they were all T6s. <laughs> yeah, do do the Luftwaffe have them? Apparently, Apparently only now. They've just gotten (laughs) (laughs) T-60. And apparently, they don't know how to fly them. I'm I'm sorry uh, to Fabian and anyone who's German, that was a joke.
2: (laughs) Yeah. uh, The California Highway Patrol said that the pilot was doing a test run from Van Nuys and did a loop around the Warner Center. And when they say loop, they do not mean a vertical loop. They mean uh, a circuitous route around the Warner Center and then started to have engine trouble. And then they, uh, according to... Uh, I believe this is from, uh, the pilot himself. I picked a spot on the freeway where I knew there was a big section of cars that weren't there, which is an interesting way to put that, but the engine completely failed. Fortunately, I was able to not hurt anybody other than the airplane. Again, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, he lost control of the plane when landing collided with the center divider. Good Samaritans helped him safely exit the plane. There is a video that uh, is in this article, which we'll have in the show notes, that shows the um, airplane coming into into land on the highway and uh, kind of hit hard and bounced, and then it goes off frame, and we don't really see what happened after that point. But uh, anyway, yep, it's a T-6 out of Van Nuys Airport, part of a group of around six of them called the Condor Squadron. All T sixes, some painted with German German markings, some with US markings. There we go. I don't know Who I think they're that an air
1: show group. They do oh. staged aerial battle in, in both paint schemes, something like that.
2: Okay. Interesting. Sad. It looks like that airplane is totaled now. Oh well. Um, oh, well I'm
1: sure the
5: Luftwaffe will be very unhappy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, this is an interesting one. A C seventeen military cargo plane dropped a humvee on a neighborhood about a mile outside of the drop zone in oops. north carolina yeah oops
5: did, did they win it in
2: a prize uh, no but uh the fortunate thing was that it didn't land on top of anybody or anything and no one on the ground was hurt and uh, they were able to retrieve the humvee and uh they um uh, they don't know why they uh the vehicle was dropped short of, or before they were supposed to drop it. I'm sure that whoever was responsible for making that mistake is probably.
3: They probably uh, have some questions to answer and some paperwork to fill out and yeah. maybe some uh, vacation time.
2: Yeah. They might Without be paid. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of pushups.
3: <laughs>
2: okay. Yeah. Um,
3: I think it landed in some trees, actually, didn't it? Did. It
2: did, yeah. So I guess the trees were damaged.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that part of North Carolina, it's uh, there's a lot of tall pine trees and things around the surrounding towns. So.
2: I guess they were testing some firewood? kind of a... Pardon me?
4: You say firewood?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, firewood. Uh, I guess they were testing some kind of a new drop deployment platform, heavy drop deployment platform.
0: Back
5: to the drawing board, I suspect. Yeah. I go back to the old one.
2: I think that uh, probably the loadmaster uh, probably pushed the button a, a little bit too early or something. I don't know who knows.
1: There was a quote in there that the load hadn't been dropped yet. So someone at least is claiming that isn't the case, but it does sort of seem like that's the most likely thing to be.
2: Yeah. And item D passenger opens cabin door on plane bound for St. Louis. A passenger on a flight from Mexico to the United States has been detained. After he opened a cabin door as the plane was taxiing to the runway, Frontier Airlines Flight 87 was bound for St. Louis, Missouri from Cancun on Monday when the passenger claimed he was feeling ill and became agitated. And the decision was made to return to the gate, the statement said. As the plane was taxiing, the man became physically violent with a flight attendant and opened a cabin door, which automatically deployed the emergency slide. Uh, uh, Kathleen, Kathleen Ingham. A passenger on the flight said the man went to the front of the aircraft and started kicking the cockpit door and asking to be left off the plane after they left the gate. She said he then pushed a flight attendant and opened a cabin door, which automatically deployed an emergency slide. And this is a Frontier, as we all know, flies uh, the narrow body uh, airbuses so It was probably a 320 or 321. Uh, thank God for the brave men and women that held him in the plane or for sure he would have been sucked into the engine she wrote in a Facebook post anyway. So uh, this is a case where you can actually open the door because the airplane is not pressurized at this point when we're operating on the ground. And uh, uh, it's a, uh, it is a miracle that the guy
4: didn't fall out the door. So Nick, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is the Airbus a plug type or a uh, plug? Plug. Okay.
2: But you don't pressurize until after you've taken off, right?
4: Uh, correct. Okay. I don't think any of us do. We do. Unless excuse me?
2: Yeah, we have a little um partial pressure that um once we start applying power.
4: Yeah, well that. but they true,
2: don't right? apply I mean, it's like doing a no pack takeoff for us. that's the normal operation for them. We don't we rarely do that unless you're taking off from LaGuardia on a hot summer day with a full load. And yeah, lots I mean of
4: fuel. the L valve's closed, but the, the sugar scoops open.
2: Yeah, so, but I'm uh, saying that uh, there is a slight bit of uh, positive pressurization. So That's um, true. I would agree yeah. with that. Thanks. Um, and then finally, some uh, guy named Dick uh, sent this in. <laughs> Rob Rick Dick Hamish uh, sent us this. Uh, Rob Rick
1: Dick? Yeah. Rob, Rob Rick Dick? No, no, no. I got enough names. No more names. <laughs> <laughs> Sure thing, so, Bob. <laughs> I think that uh, since
2: he's here and he's the one that sent us this news item, he should read it. He should talk about <laughs> this. What happened here,
1: Robert? Uh, th- yeah, this is a good one. Brian Andrew Maktimes, pilot for Sun Country Airlines, was arrested and accused of having a gun in his carry on suitcase. Uh, the Lee County Sheriff's Office. That's probably a, a photo cap. <laughs> a Sun Country Airlines pilot was arrested and accused of bringing in a gun to Southwest Florida International Airport Friday night. According to a Lee County Port Authority arrest report, 54-year-old Brian Andrew Mactamese was arrested when a TSA agent found a firearm in his carry-on suitcase as he went through security. Uh, Mactamese of Minnesota told a Lee County Port Authority police officer that he had packed his own bag. Officer found a Caltech 380 pistol in the second zipper pouch on the front of the suitcase. It was loaded with six rounds, the report states. Lovely. Uh, Yeah, so... Apparently he, let's see, he declined to answer questions, opting to ask for an attorney. Um, And according to TSA, a passenger may transport an unloaded firearm in a locked hard side container as checked baggage only. So there are three or four ways there that he was violating it, and apparently he's a pilot. Uh, I can confirm he is a pilot for Sun Country, said Kirsten Wanker, a spokeswoman for sun country airlines but she added in the interest of respecting the privacy of and preserving the trust of all our employees we do not comment or confirm details related to individual employee conduct or work performance and he remains in custody with bail set at five thousand dollars
2: now i wonder if he were a flight deck um off federal flight deck officer it would have stated such in this article maybe and I'm not sure what kind of uh, pistols that they are issued. If they're a Keltec, no, it's a it's 380. a 380. It's 40 cal. A Caltech
1: okay. Caltech 380 is a it's a small, like it's a subcompact, very small uh, concealed carry pistol, so, which will do no damage.
2: Well, I bet you if it well. <laughs> It might do a little of damage.
1: Yeah, it's,
4: <laughs> if it's, you put it against your head and pull the trigger, that would. Go, that, that would but, I know, was thinking of other, other sensitive
3: somebody. areas, yeah. too. Yeah.
2: Um. <laughs> We're going to anyway. take one, stick it in Dana's crotch and see if it causes any damage.
4: <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> that's that's steel down there. Yeah, they come from Boston. Bulletproof. Bulletproof.
2: <laughs> oh, anyway. So another case of uh, just being an idiot. Hmm. <laughs>
4: Uh, yeah. Anyway, well, I mean, her name says it all. It does. Wanker.
2: <laughs> that's a wanker. I think by it's the way, wanker. he's a wanker. Yeah, a wanker, I, not sorry, wanker. Not <laughs> <laughs> I think Rob put a special little spin on it. Okay. And oh, never mind. I was going to hit the that. What's that's what she said thing, but forget <laughs> it. All uh, right, that's all of our items in the news folder for today's show. Thank goodness. <laughs> And, uh, now it's time for your feedback.
1: Captain incoming message.
2: Okay. Now due to the magic of podcasting, uh, we were last recording on Tuesday evening. I was in Birmingham, Alabama and, uh, captains Dana and Nick were in Washington, DC with Robert Fairbairn at his studio, and we kind of ran out of time and decided that we would finish the rest of the show at some later date. And this is the later date. It is now Saturday morning, uh, the what day, the third of November. We're in a new month, actually. And uh, so that's that's where we are. We're going to continue with the show and uh, start with some feedback. But before we do that, let's um, just quickly catch up with uh, what has happened between tuesday night and saturday morning for everybody uh captain nick uh how you doing you recovered yet from uh tuesday night uh
5: yeah i recovered uh, before i got airborne and flew home but i have to say the flight home was uh a bit of a trial it's, it's, it's a long night flight never very nice, and uh london was uh a pretty uh Awful weather, you know, heavy rain, showers, wet, and gloopy and nasty. But we got in all right. Um, my uh, lovely first officer did a great job. Anyway, um, since then I've done not much. Um, but we are. I am trying to tee up a little meet-up with Steph, who is, of course, we know running her marathon um, on Sunday. Now, I get into New York on Sunday. It'll be too late for me to uh, see Steph uh, finish the run, which is a crying shame because I I land quite late. Um, But the next day, we are hoping to get together for brunch. So that'll be Monday morning. Uh, So I don't know what time brunch is, somewhere around 10 or 11 o'clock perhaps. And it'll be somewhere around Manhattan, but we haven't decided where yet. So Uh, Time and place TBD. Uh, We will obviously post something in Slack when we've decided. And I'm leaving it very much up to Steph as to uh, how fit she feels, whether she wants to make the journey. And in fact, uh, it depends to a certain extent where she's overnighting uh, after the marathon. So that's uh, a possibility on uh, Monday. And uh, just a little bit of notice. uh, I'm heading for Berlin. Um, At the end of the month, I plan to take uh, uh, my lovely wife uh, out there for a few days. We hope to uh, visit some of the Christmas markets in Berlin, which are kicking off at the end of November. Um, And I'll be staying with one of our lovely uh, listeners, uh, Tillman, in the Circus Hotel in uh, Berlin. And um, of course, he has that fabulous little microbrewery uh, right next door to his hotel. It's all part of the same thing. Uh, and uh, we were thinking about having a little meetup for any of our listeners who happen to be in that corner of Germany or, or anywhere else if you fancy a trip into uh, Berlin. And the, the best day is probably going to be Tuesday, the 27th of November. So uh, if you happen to be in uh, available uh, or in Berlin uh, on Tuesday, the 27th, uh, probably, uh, I'm guessing, evening. Uh, I I'm, We haven't really discussed the time, but evening would probably be best for most people. Um, then uh, we're going to get together in the uh, Circus Brewery uh, and um, we're going to have a few beers because I've got my magic tankard, which apparently fills itself up which Tillman gave to us a couple of farmers ago when he made the journey all the way over from Berlin to uh, farmer to meet us. What a lovely bloke. Uh, what a lovely time we had uh, chatting to him. And I'm really looking forward to remaking his acquaintance when uh, we go over to Berlin. So just thought I'd mention that and perhaps people can pop it in their diaries.
2: I have not yet had a chance to uh, use my bottomless tankard. So one of these days.
5: Yeah. Or your tank at this bottom
2: yes <laughs> <laughs> Not sure what that means but yeah right so Dana uh, you uh, were also up late on Tuesday evening and uh, you made it back to your layover hotel and the rest of your trip how did all that go?
4: Well uh, yeah after a wonderful evening uh, by our wonderful host uh, Robert I made it back to the hotel and then flew four legs on uh, what would that have been Wednesday. And then uh on Thursday, uh, finished three legs, even despite the bad weather here in Atlanta. Uh made it back in uh pretty much on actually ahead of schedule, about twenty minutes ahead of schedule. So I don't want to give too much away on that because I'm planning on uh as long as I have some time this week, uh, recording a uh um crew log. Crew log, yep. Yeah. So <clears throat> that way uh give some extra information to our patrons out there. It was, uh, it was a good trip. I had an excellent FO. He's a very sharp uh, helicopter pilot from the Army, which is uh, rare. We don't have a whole lot of Army pilots. <laughs> is it, it, it's I, very,
5: very rare to find a sharp one.
4: Yeah, that's what it sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if, I, if it sounded like that. <laughs>
5: I think uh, AG from Opposing Bases is going to be right near the email. <laughs>
4: no. It's not what I meant at all. What I, what I really meant is that we we don't have too many Army pilots at the ACME.
2: That's what we kind of figured you meant.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, I said it, I guess, incorrectly. and made, made my poor FO sound not just... not, not well, the, My FO good, but the rest of the... Uh, Army pilots, i uh, not so sharp. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, it wasn't listen, um, Gary Donato. Yeah. yeah. He, he was an army guy, is, right? Yeah. He's yeah. an army guy as well. So, but it, it the, <laughs> I can't think of any <laughs> other guys I've ever flown with it or army.
2: Yeah. I think so, I've flown with just a handful over the years. Yeah.
4: yeah. Very, very few. Um, so uh, he is, uh, he, he was a pleasure to, to fly with new guy only has, you know, a little over a hundred hours. At the, uh, at the company and did a really good job, was uh, very much like a uh, sponge. He wanted to learn as much as he possibly could and was trying to apply different ways of uh, flying the airplane like you and I can do, Jeff, versus uh, just flying it via, via VNAV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also encourage him to you know click the autopilot off and fly a little bit uh, with his hands versus just using the um, – the autopilot all the way down. So mm-hmm. did a great job. Very proud of him. And, uh, I've actually after the show, I'm going to sit down and I have to do the, uh, online review in, in uh, our system because it's requesting that because he is on probation. So, mm-hmm. um, a pleasure to fly with and a pleasure to talk with. So, uh, that's about it on that. And then, uh, came home Thursday and haven't really yesterday. What did I do? Yeah, I don't even remember what I did. I did all types of errands. I went to the mm-hmm. chiropractor because uh, my back has been killing me ever since I did that uh, stress test on Monday. You know, they got that uh, treadmill way up in the air, like 18 or 20 degrees up. You know, I was at a f- pretty much at a full run to get my heart rate high enough. I uh, guess that they were, I guess it shows I'm in decent shape. Yeah. So um, it took me, I think, 10, yeah, 10 minutes to get it all the way up. Um, that didn't sound pretty good. <laughs> keep it keep <laughs> <get my>, going. <laughs> to get my heart rate all the okay, way up. Yeah, yeah. Sounds what?
5: like you need one of those little <laughs> blue pills. <for> no.
4: <laughs> but <laughs> in doing so, I, I tweaked something in my back and I've been in pain ever since. I went to the chiropractor yesterday. I met up with a really good buddy of mine for lunch in honor of his birthday yesterday. And now I'm here doing the podcast. And I started to. Uh, um, Liz just said in the, in the chat room, no wonder Julie's approaching care. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Yeah. So anyways, uh, yeah, a pretty, pretty, uh, good week. And, uh, I will fill in a little more on the, uh, on the actual trip and go through a lot more detail, uh, when I do the crew log. Oh, okay. We look forward to that. Yeah. And
2: let's see, for me, uh, I finished up my trip uh, the next day. It was the next day we were in uh, Madison, I think. Yeah, Madison, Wisconsin. I met up with uh, Chris Ott and didn't record anything, uh, but he picked me up from the hotel and took me to a uh, barbecue joint in um, uh, actually very close to the Madison airport. And we had a wonderful uh, late lunch and spent uh, a good part of the afternoon together just talking. It was great. And uh, so thank you, Chris, for driving. All, he lives up near Oshkosh and drove down to Madison to uh, meet up with me. So uh, that was a, a great time. Uh, thanks again for that, uh, for treating me uh, to a wonderful barbecue lunch. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it for me as well came home and attended a an Acme Airlines conference yesterday involving multiple divisions uh, of our company and uh, it was a a way for us to you know uh, enhance our customers uh, expectations and experiences uh, while flying on our airline so that was a uh, really nice to be able to meet up with people from all the different divisions of the uh, company and how we kind of interact and interface with each other and how, you know, we depend upon each other for this operation to be performed smoothly. So anyway, that was, uh, that took me all day yesterday, but that, uh, was definitely worth it. Okay. Um, I think we're all caught up. Oh, Steph, as, uh, uh, Nick just mentioned is in New York and, uh, she'll be running the New York marathon tomorrow morning. So
4: how many how many is that this year so far? I so don't know. 3? Probably. I don't I, I know have, she I ran would. the Boston marathon. She ran the Chicago. Mhm. No, she didn't run the Chicago this year, did she?
2: No, I think she did. Yeah, she, she did. was in oh, Chicago. Oh, yeah, she did. Yeah, she yeah
4: Chicago. The, New York her
5: personal best at Chicago.
4: Mm-hmm. So that's definitely 3 that I can remember for sure.
2: Yep. Yeah, we lose track. She runs so it's many. It's amazing. We,
5: and remember. all those 5k's and other runs she does uh, on top of everything else.
4: Yeah, she did the uh, Charlotte one last week, was it, that she did her yeah. personal best as well? I mean, she's absolutely, positively amazing. Yeah, she is. So good luck, Steph,
2: tomorrow on your on your run. Okay, so now let's get into the feedback. Um, and let's start off with an uh, item two, uh Chris. And Captain Nick, why don't you go ahead and take this one, sir?
5: Uh, so this is Chris saying hello, Jeff, uh, Steph, Nick, and Dana. I'm Chris from Cambridge in the UK, nice place. Longtime listener, patron of the show, second-time sender of feedback. Well, send us some more, Chris. I'll make this fairly quick as my wife thinks I'm cleaning the house. Well... <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh,
5: nice one. I was following a story here in the UK recently where a 15-year-old girl purchased a sandwich from a pret a Manger coffee sandwich chain we have here in the UK and probably elsewhere in the world. Unfortunately, the sandwich contained undeclared sesame seeds baked into the bread, and she had a severe sesame allergy. Uh, cut to the chase, she boarded a flight after consuming the sandwich and died on board a very sad event. Um, what interested me, however, was that during her inquest, the coroner slated British Airways cabin crew for not using a defibrillator, which was on board during the approach into Nice Airport, for reasons which I'll copy from the relevant news article, and that's below. So uh, the B... Oh, yeah, B-A... This is the, uh, the little bit that British Airways said. BA Head of Cabin Crew Services, uh, John Harris, said it was a formal requirement of his training to ensure that cabin crew uh, were in a, in a position on landing so they could get passengers off the aircraft in case of an emergency. He said, without sounding, ha- sounding harsh, the coverage of doors takes priority. There were only five cabin crew on that particular flight, and the aircraft had four sets of doors, totaling eight, and one cabin crew member was out of action. So we literally had the minimum number of crew to cover those doors. BA flight attendant Mario Malasteri told the inquest it would have been too dangerous to get the defibrillator from the other end of the aircraft. So Chris carries on. Uh, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on this. Whilst the crew obviously have very specific roles to play during approach and landing, I read this article struggling to believe that it would have been completely impossible for one of the junior cabin crew members to move from their position for 20 seconds to grab the AED uh, and uh, pass it to the junior doctor who was attending to the girl in an attempt to try and give her the best possible chance of survival. Even if having gotten to that stage, it was unlikely anyone was going to be able to bring her back. I don't know anything about cabin crew procedures and regulations. I wondered, Nick, whether this incident had been brought up in conversation at Acme Red between you and any of your cabin crew. It would have been interesting... uh, Or it would be interesting to hear all of your perspectives. And Steph, from a medical point of view, sadly, she's not available today. But uh, if someone has gone into cardiac arrest from being unable to breathe through anaphylaxis, is it even possible to resuscitate? Uh, It must have been exceptionally difficult for the cabin crew to sit at their positions, watching this girl die in front of them uh, and her father, knowing that the rules prevented them from moving and providing assistance during a critical phase of flight. A completely horrendous situation for all involved. As for me, I've been working through my PPL recently. I've completed both solo nav flights and I'm just waiting for the weather to pick up so I can go on my QXC, cross something cross, quite qualifying cross country, as I a guess, uh, which for me will be Cambridge to Northampton, Seywall, onwards to Peterborough. Peterborough Peter-brah.
2: peter Bruh. Yes, according
5: to Chris' pronunciation That was obviously guide. for me. peter <laughs> Yeah, Connington, and then back to Cambridge in one of the club's 172s. Fingers crossed I'll get this, that done this week. Then, assuming uh, I make it round okay, it'll be time for my skills test. Cheers, blue skies, etc. Chris. P.S., Got another couple of bits to send in that crossed my mind recently, but we'll send separately, so we look forward to hearing that. Right. Um, now, the reason I w- specifically wanted to cover this one, Jeff, was because I spoke to uh, at length to my senior cabin crew member on the return flight uh, from uh, Washington and uh, sort of posed him, put him in the same scenario. Lovely bloke, uh, an Italian called Ricardo, uh, And... Um, He said that uh, the cabin crew have done their best to find out through uh, various means what went on during the flight. I haven't seen any formal incident report, and they haven't had anything officially circulated. So this is all what we would term galley FM. So, you know, the the cabin crew of all airlines, um, you know, they have a a lot of… ways of finding out what happens. Not all of it is, of course, accurate. So Gally FN can be just nothing but gossip. But uh, anyway, uh, he uh, said that uh, the thing that surprised him was that they didn't uh, let the doctor know that they had a DFib on board. They had decided that there wasn't going to be uh, time to bring it out and use it, so they didn't bother letting him know. Uh, So even if the cabin crew had been um, required to be at their doors, the doctor uh, wouldn't have had access to it. Now, I know these machines are simple to use, but uh, certainly, and I can only now go by our regulations and not by uh, the airline-involved BA, uh, and we're not allowed to allow, uh, not allowed to allow, (laughs) we're not permitted to allow a doctor or medical volunteer to use the DFib on board Um, not because it's particularly complicated but because of the regulations involved in when you can actually shock or not and here there comes that dreadful term health and safety because there are certain periods during the flight where the risk of shocking the surrounding people as well as the patient uh, are so high because it might be uh, there might be turbulence uh, it might be during the landing phase. The aircraft moves around a lot and it would be very easy for someone to stumble over the patient just as you were shocking them. And you could end up stopping someone's heart who was just trying to assist at the same time as you're trying to start the heart of someone who is in cardiac arrest. So that is just one of the reasons. We're also not allowed to use it during um, a, a phase cat3 auto land because of the potential risk of that high voltage um, upsetting the um, rather delicate uh, systems we use to waterland the aircraft. but I don't think that was the case here. but certainly our regulations on our on our aircraft prevent you from using the defu from with the seatbelt signs on uh, during the landing phase or during the taxi phase, but we we discussed the scenario, and of course it's very easy in the cold light of day when you thought about it to come up with an idea of what you would do. But Ricardo said he he personally said to hell with the regulations. Uh, I would have uh, stayed with the um, patient. I would have accessed the uh, the defibrillator. I would have used it. Uh, in as safer moment as I could, if it was uh, advising a shock because that was obviously the last chance. Now, without Dr. Steph here to advise us as to whether that defibrillator would have had any meaningful effect, uh, we can't be sure. But of course, anaphylaxis uh, usually affects uh, the uh, patient's uh, ability to breathe. Um, and uh, of course, without option going, into the lungs. It doesn't matter whether the heart's going and pumping the circulatory system, without option there and available, And sadly, the de- death is almost inevitable because uh, the brain needs so much oxygen. When it eventually runs out, it's going to shut down. Eventually, it'll cause death. Now, uh, it's such a difficult situation, this, and and it's very hard to double-guess, and I've no doubt the crew involved will be having dreadful thoughts of what occurred on their aircraft for the rest of their lives let alone the family involved and everyone else who this story has touched so i really do try and treat this particular incident with a huge amount of sympathy for everyone involved because it obviously didn't go well but that was the thoughts of our crew now i don't know if you have any um thoughts from the way your system works
2: no, I think that uh, that's pretty much in line, as far as I know, with the way things are. Our policy is at uh, Acme. What do you think, Dana? Dana?
4: Yeah, I, th- I would think that uh, you know it, it's a judgment call at that moment, and you know it's a, a regulation issue. Um, but sometimes you just need to look past uh, regulations in in life and death situations. So, yeah. you know, I, I can see I can see the the flight attendants. Point because you get a a whole aircraft of you know full of people as well that you have to be worried about their safety. But unless there is an immediate threat to to the safety of the aircraft and in in the entire um, um, passenger load, then I would I would tend to agree that maybe something should have been tried. But you know we we can Monday morning quarterback it all we want. It it, at the end of the day, you did say something that you know Dr. Steph is not here, but Inflaxic is. Uh, progressive and probably may have been, um, you know, a, a mute point anyway. So we, we don't know. Anderson. The one the one treatment, of course, that
5: can give relief is uh, an EpiPen. Epi-pen yeah, yeah? Uh, and the patient had her own, and there was one on board. Um, but and they were both used. Now, what was it, most medical? Um, experts and certainly the Kavanger, who are not medical experts were unaware was that um, they should be used in separate uh, muscles so I think one they both went into one leg, uh, the big muscles on one leg uh, and um, because of, I don't know because of the way the adrenaline is absorbed I, I am informed uh, by uh, Ricardo that uh, they've discovered and are now teaching that you should put uh, a pen in each leg uh, because perhaps, uh, you know, putting them both into one leg just doesn't allow from the adrenaline to get into the circulatory system well. And also most EpiPens seem to be a really relatively short needle. And uh, apparently uh, tests have shown that the needle needs to be a little longer to have a proper effect. And also they do um, time out. Uh, They time expire Uh, relatively quickly and it's quite common for people to carry them around for a much longer period than they're really useful so that all came out of the inquest apparently i haven't looked it up personally so i'm relying on third-party information here but um, that all uh, adds to it if the adrenaline had worked properly then of course the um the defibrillator might have been a real option to bring this uh, young lady back to life. But uh, as it was, uh, sadly, uh, nothing seemed to work.
2: Chris, congratulations on your PPL. And uh, let's see, he sent this in on the 20th of October. So by now, I'm assuming that he has knocked out that QXC and uh, is uh, perhaps maybe even has finished his skills test. So uh, Congratulations on
5: that. Weather's been pretty reasonable uh, last couple of weeks. So fingers crossed for you.
4: Yeah. Hopefully. All right. Maybe he'll write in with the with some feedback and let us know how he did.
2: Absolutely. And I think that he said he is going to do that. So excellent. All right. With that, I think it's now time for the best part of the show. And of course, everybody knows it's the old pilot's plane tales. And this episode or this week's episode is, well, I'll let him tell us.
5: The old pilot's plain tales. He flies east, flies north, flies west, flies undone. There were periods during the First World War when the average life of a pilot was measured in days. And their time in the air by a handful of hours, assuming of course they completed their training without killing themselves, which were about the same odds you got from spinning a coin. So anyone who volunteered to take up the challenge of climbing into a flimsy kite-like structure of wooden wire covered with painted canvas and powered by a primitive and unreliable motor that often only had two settings, on or off, was, in my mind, a hero even before they first tried to get airborne. Those gallant young men often took to the air to escape the awful conditions, the death and destruction, gas, disease and torment that was their life in the trenches. They fondly imagined that a life high above the stinking foul war below, would be clean and brave, man against man in modern, chivalrous combat. Perhaps that was in the mind of a 22-year-old Lance Corporal Johns, who had served in Gallipoli and then on the Macedonian front in Greece, but who was recovering from malaria in hospital. Johns was an Englishman born towards the end of the 1800s in Hartford to a modest couple. His father was a tailor, and his mother the daughter of a master butcher. Christened William Earl, the Earl coming from his mother's maiden name, he had a happy upbringing, attending a local Hartford grammar school. Here he became part of the school's cadet corps, and where he excelled at rifle shooting despite calling his time with the cadets a silly game. In later life he commented that none could guess that within a few years most of them would be doing these things in grim earnest on the war-stricken fields of Flanders, or that before the First World War was over nearly a third of them were to die on that same battlefield. William was keen to enter the army, but when he left school in 1907, his father arranged for him to become articled as a surveyor. Completing his apprenticeship, he was appointed as a sanitary inspector in Swatham, but despite any lingering waft his work may have left on him, he walked out with the local vicar's daughter and they eventually became married. Denied the chance of joining the regulars, William joined the Territorial Army in the King's Own Royal Regiment, the Norfolk Yeomanry. However, when war was declared on the 4th of August 1914, William left the shores of England to serve as a machine gunner alongside the Anzacs during the disastrous Gallipoli Campaign. When they finally stole away from their trenches on the peninsula in the middle of the night, they left a quarter of a million dead men behind, with many more who were maimed physically or mentally. After contracting malaria during his next campaign in Salonika, one of over 63,000 men to do so, he was in hospital recovering when he had an epiphany and decided to join the Royal Flying Corps. It seemed to me, he said, that there was no point in dying standing in squalor if one could do so sitting down in clean air. Commissioned as a second lieutenant, Johns began his training at No. 1 School of Aeronautics at Reading and the Aerodrome at Coley Park, where he learned his trade as a pilot in a Maurice Farman Shorthorn. His first posting was as a flying instructor There are many astonishing tales of death and disaster from these times, and Johns himself had a number of spectacular crashes and forced landings from failed engines, one on his very first flight. He once wrote off three planes in three days due to engine failure and must have destroyed over ten. Had he been a German fighter pilot, that would have made him an ace. In July 1918, he was posted to Number 55 Day Bombing Squadron to fly the de Havilland DH-4 heavy bomber out of Anselot, near Nancy in France. They were nicknamed Flying Coffins because the petrol tank was between the pilot and his rear observer and a good target for enemy aircraft. He didn't last long before coming to grief whilst flying in formation on a bombing raid to Mannheim. Johns, together with his rear gunner, 2nd Lieutenant Amy, were hit by anti-aircraft fire and their fuel tank hold. Forced to drop out of formation, they were easy prey for a dozen or so German fighters and their aircraft was shot to pieces. Amy was killed, and Johns had his goggles smashed by bullets before being wounded in the thigh. Eventually his engine was hit and stopped, spraying petrol vapour everywhere. Luckily the flames held off, and Johns crashed in a German field, passing out. When he came to, he managed to clamber out of the wreckage, but he couldn't get Amy's body out. Captured by local Germans who had witnessed the recent bombing of a Sunday school, he was given a rough time until the pilots who shot him down came to rescue him. After that, he was treated with great camaraderie, but apart from a couple of escape adventures, he remained in captivity for the rest of the war. He returned to his family on Christmas Day 1918, much to their astonishment, as he had been listed as missing, and until he walked through the door, they all thought he was dead. He returned to the active list in the newly formed Royal Air Force and promoted to flight lieutenant, joining the Inspectorate of Recruiting in London's Covent Garden. It was here that he rejected the application of one John Hume Ross, who wanted to join the RAF as an aircraftsman. To Williams' amazement, higher authorities stepped in, and Aircraftsman Ross, or how he is better known, Lawrence of Arabia, was permitted to join after all. But that's another story. When William's commission came to an end in 1927, he started a career that turns this story into something more than a tale of a brave but unremarkable pilot of the First World War, into something rather special. Being a bit of an artist, William started making a living by selling his work to various magazines, such as the Illustrated London News. He specialised in aviation art, and, with a growing reputation, worked for the magazine Modern Boy, not only painting, but writing a few articles. Credited as our aviation expert, soon his byline became Flying Officer John's. A few books followed, and William was invited to become the editor of a new magazine, Popular Flying. As part of the very first edition, the new editor, wrote some authentic flying stories about the war and decided to create a fictional pilot whose adventures the readers could follow. The chap that William invented was called James Bigglesworth, better known as, and later to be recognised in just about every corner of the civilised world, as Biggles. Before long, a collection of the magazine articles were assembled into the first Biggles book, The Camels Are Coming, and the flying hero that so many of us know and love was properly born. Initially authored by W.E. Johns, before long, William gave himself the pen name we are more familiar with by adding an honorific to become Captain W.E. Johns. Peppered with the sort of exclamations that we all mimic from time to time, like Top Hole, Grand, Good Gracious, By Jove, Cripes, Infernal Damnation, and such, the books were filled with the daring do that all boys of the time loved. Before long he had taken on a few chums to share his adventures, the Honourable Algernon Lacey, a cousin and better known as Algy, and Ginger Hebblethwaite, a runaway teenager from Yorkshire who Biggles recruits into the team. Other characters included Lord Bertie Lissy, who flew with a hunting horn and a monocle, Tug Carrington, a boxer, Flight Sergeant Smythe, his mechanic, Colonel William Raymond of British Intelligence, and Biggles' greatest opponent, the dastardly Prussian, Erich von Stalheim. Biggles starts off as a teenage fighter pilot, or scout pilot in the vernacular of the time. He joins the RFC under age, having sort of lost his birth certificate. He represented a very British hero, growing from a slightly hysterical youth prone to practical jokes to a calm, confident, competent leader, combining a thoroughly professional approach to flying with a gentlemanly air. Biggles progresses through both wars and beyond, being given many missions by the military and British intelligence before finally working for the Special Air Police. All told, There were to be 101 Biggles books, although the debate is still ongoing, but Captain W.E. Johns wrote others too. The demand for popular flying, with Johns as editor, was heavy from the very first issue, and the magazine remained highly successful. He may have had little journalistic experience, but he had a natural flair, and in his editorials he was not only informative, but prepared to be outspoken and politically controversial. His writing generated some criticism and even pressure from the government, who were adopting a conciliatory approach to German rearmament. The magazine, however, established itself as a most popular aviation publication, both here and in America. The quality of the writing, the controversial content, and so on, marked John's editorship. He even commissioned an article from Hermann Goering, a member of Baron von Richthofen's Flying Circus, and an ace having shot down 22 aircraft. This article carried the rider... The publication of this article does not necessarily mean that we agree with Captain Goering's present political activities, we are only concerned with his career as an airman. Despite her very full life, editing, writing, broadcasting and travelling, Johns was also politically active. The international situation of the 20s and 30s was a cause of great concern to him and the government not only wanted to reduce money to the RAF but was even talking of disbanding it. In May 1931, Johns wrote a trenchant article about the government's air policy entitled Disarmament, Dementia and Economy. He was not the only one concerned. A speech was given in the House of Commons by Lieutenant-Colonel Moore Brabazon, who Johns quoted, in which he said, The enemy of the Air Force is not across the Channel, it's in Whitehall. His publisher launched a sister paper to Popular Flying called Flying at Threepence Company, and Johns was asked to be the editor. Sadly, his controversial stance resulted in him being called to the House of Commons and being dismissed as editors of both magazines. The start of the Second World War proved the dire prophecies of so many people, including John's, were absolutely correct, and he found himself very much back in favour. He hoped to get back to flying, but he was now 46, so the Air Ministry appointed him as a lecturer to the Air Defence Corps, which became the Air Training Corps in 1941. During the Second World War, it was recognised what a great recruitment tool Biggles had become, and the Air Ministry asked Johns to create a female counterpart to aid recruitment to the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, and so Worrells appeared in 1941. The War Office didn't want to be left out of all this excellent recruiting methods, and so, in 1943, a commando officer, Gimlet, appeared. The effect of John's books is not to be underestimated. Many pilots of the era, myself included, albeit a little later, will tell you that their inspiration to fly started with the Biggles books of Captain W.E. Johns that they read as a small boy. After the war, Johns, who by now had left his first wife, although he continued to support her and their son, and he moved in with another lady who was to be his companion for the rest of his life. His success as a writer was by now well established, and his books, particularly the Biggles series, were being translated into many languages, even German, which sold very well and, amazingly, were widely read by German children. Only in America were the books not popular, being considered too British for their taste. Biggles' stories were also broadcast on the BBC, but it was in Australia that Biggles on Radio became a true institution. In the 1960s, Johns found himself, like Enid Blyton and other long-established writers of children's books, accused of racism, elitism and all the other isms you can think of with his books being removed from the library shelves. A period of political correctness was about to condemn these books for using the common language of the time and draw conclusions about their authors that were neither fair nor correct. Another distasteful aspect was that it was only after his death, when he could no longer defend himself, that these attacks increased. It was on the 21st of June 1968 at 8.30 in the morning that William stopped mid-sentence while writing Biggles does some homework in order to make himself and his partner a cup of tea. He went upstairs to her, sat in his armchair, and suffered a fatal heart attack. He died immediately. He was 75 years old. Although the name he brought into common usage is often used as a parody of times past, Captain W.E. Johns was not just an author, he was a warrior who fought well and fought bravely. With titles like Biggles Goes to War, Biggles Secret Agent, Biggles Defies the Swastika, Biggles and the Black Raider, Biggles and the Gun Runners, and Biggles Flies North, South, East and West, Captain W.E. John's writings motivated generations of boys to seek out the thrills of flying with their tales of adventure mystery, intrigue, bravery, comradeship, and fair play, all within a world populated by brave pilots and marvelous planes. What more could a youngster have wanted?
2: So, I noticed that uh, not-so-subtle dig uh, toward the uh, beginning of that, where you said that Biggles is known in most civilized countries.
5: Uh, (laughs) I got it. I heard it. Uh, You see, you've heard of Biggles, though. I mean, yeah. you may not have read any of, of the books, but everyone yeah, knows the name Biggles.
2: They weren't so popular here in the U.S. as far as I'm aware. Anyway, no, that's that's right.
5: They at the time they were considered, uh, you know, they didn't really suit your taste. I
2: think. Yes, yeah, it's too British. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that, but that's the kind of the attraction because it was it was. Uh, Britain and Empire, and he flew all around the Empire doing his thing, you know, in his biplanes, whatever. And it was, they were great adventure stories. It, it was the uh, era when um, many boys grew up to those fabulous, uh, rather now, um uh anacric No, that's not the word I'm looking for. Um, help me out. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, a rather. <laughs> Uh, um,
2: I, I know the word you're looking for, but I can't get it either. Yeah,
5: I know. Yeah. I, main Man Michael will probably come up with it. Yeah. Anachronism. So oh, there you go. Anachronistic. There you anachronistic, go. Anachronistic. Thank you for this. Yeah. Um, books uh, about uh, boys' adventures. So there, there were many of them uh, in the UK and, and lots of magazines and, and annuals that you used to get. And Biggles was just part of that fantastic
2: thing. Yeah. Hmm. Excellent. Um and so you mentioned that uh, his books were taken out of libraries because it wasn't uh, politi- politically correct. Is that still well, that's the case? Right. Uh, you, uh how do you find Well I, I,
5: I think the the books are still in print mm-hmm. uh, and you can buy them on Amazon. Oh, Whether go. they've been tied it up and had it, had uh, the various terms that were common at the time and are now considered quite insulting. Uh, removed from them and replaced I don't know but Edith Blyton one of the famous uh, um, children's book writers suffered the same fate and she uh, wrote um, she was one of the most prolific authors uh, that we ever had and uh, I think people um, you know just overreacted a little bit Um, but there you go Um,
2: yeah yeah. And the same thing as main, uh, main man Micah points out, you know, this uh, Tom Swift and the Hardy Boys uh, book series, same kind of thing uh, occurred. And then I'm thinking also Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn.
5: Well, that's exactly what I was going to I mean, I read The Avengers of Huckleberry Finn. You see, I, mm-hmm. I read your books. You didn't read mine, but there well, you go. I wish I think it's rather unfair of you. Sorry. Um, and uh, yeah, there were some words in there which uh, wouldn't go down well now if you use them in, uh, in everyday right, conversation. Right.
2: Well, very interesting. Thank you, Nick, for uh, putting that one together. And
5: uh, well, I know it'll please everyone that doesn't come
2: from the states because we all know about him. <laughs> it, it pleased me too. Okay. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um, and I'd like to please everybody here in the audience as much as possible. And my original plan was to uh, cover a couple pieces of audio feedback regarding. Questions about autopilot use and manual flying and that kind of thing. And I think that our resultant conversation regarding them is going to uh, be more than the uh, amount of time we have remaining in this episode. So I'm going to uh, do an audible here and switch plans and uh, let's uh, switch over to item number one, which is just a quick one, I'm hoping, from SealView. Uh, He said, um, he gives us a a link to an article in Forbes.com, and he said that um, uh, the title of the article uh with the first a380 on the scrap heap after just 11 years airbus's bad bet now is painfully obvious and he said shocked is an understatement but i guess many airlines are going for the long and skinny routes rather than rather than hub and spoke which makes the a380 unprofitable did you notice this trend at your respective airlines do they recently did they recently open up new routes with less demand Thanks again, and keep up the great show. Tailwinds, clear skies, countless IPAs for the crew, and rivers of well-aged bourbon for Captain Dana. <laughs> very nice. I don't know rivers. That sounds dangerous to me.
4: That is very yeah. dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so can lead to liver failure.
2: So, of course, you know we all know the A380, uh, huge airplane, amazing technology. Uh, it's just that uh, may have not been the proper time for it. Maybe it's before or past. It's time. Uh, but and, and I think Nick can kind of, you know, give us his feelings regarding four engine airplanes, um, you know, out there in passenger service kind of getting, you know, not favorable attention. Lately. Well,
5: yeah, exactly, exactly right, Jeff. I mean, the 380 really was there because uh, airports were filling up. The only way to get more passengers in for the same number of landing slots is to build bigger airplanes. And uh, the projections at the time and the fuel costs at the times uh, made the 380 a, a an ideal airplane to satisfy particular routes. Now, sadly, fuel costs rocketed, uh, and that was. Uh, really the death knell of the 380 because i think it would still be a very viable option for uh lots of routes quite specific ones but lots of them but of course uh, any four-engine airplane is now going to struggle uh to present a the same profit margin that a couple of two-engine airplanes can because you can you know fly a a long-range Thinner aircraft with any two engines, it's, it's cheaper to build, it's cheaper to run, uh, it uses less fuel, so it's operating costs are way down compared with uh, something like the 380. So it's going to be uh, uh, ideal for most airlines. Uh, obviously, the Middle East carriers uh, still like the idea that they really do deal in mass transport. So the 380 is going to continue to work for them for quite a while. And I think you'll still see it on some routes for a number of years. But I think Airbus were just too late in the game. If they'd come in perhaps 10 years, preferably 15 years before, and and presented a, a reasonable, uh, when in fact, what has turned out to be a fantastic um, competition aircraft for the 747, um, then, uh, you know, it, I think it would have... Um, been in on people's books for a lot longer now that it's being pulled out because um the costs of maintaining them and and running them just uh don't justify the overheads on the profit margin you're getting uh, it's very sad but that's just economic selling there's anything wrong with the airplane and the fact it uses a bit much too much gas uh, compared with uh, the twins that we see flying around now and the composite aircraft that are really all aimed at lightweight and low fuel burns. So that's the order of the day, I'm afraid. The and The three, it is fallen foul of that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nev also makes a good point. Um, had not ETOPS been such a positive success using twins instead of three or four engine airplanes, perhaps it, this may have been a different story as well.
5: Yeah, very very good point. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, ETOPS killed off a number of aircraft types. Sadly, you know, the uh, uh, L-1011 included, uh, which uh, was a fabulous airplane. But uh, when people realize that they could have a twin-engine airplane doing the same job, then what's the point of bolting a third engine on and having all that additional cost and expense?
2: Yes. Uh, So, yeah. All right. Um, Let's move on to – oh, this is from – Tarquin, Um, dear sweet captains, Jeff, Nick, Dana, and Dr. Steph, it's Tarquin here. I write to you with great urgency as I have some unsettling news for you all. Well, except for Nick, he's safely out of this, unless he's on a USA layover between the fateful dates. The news, or is it the warning I have for you, is that somehow, unbelievably, the village idiot that is Ivor... What a terrible name has gained access to your country. Calm down. It hasn't happened yet. He's traveling under the cover of his wife. Poor, poor woman. I'm sure if he tried to get in on his own, the authorities would be all over him. But he's gained access and you need to be aware of his movements. I'll leave a gap here for you to run with all the movements jokes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Any any, you want to? Throwing any movements jokes there? No. No,
5: no. It's a very personal subject, and I'd rather not discuss it on air.
2: It is. It is. Uh, I'm trying to find something that might be appropriate. Okay, there we go. So, okay, that's enough. Thank you is that hillel again yeah Yeah. (laughs) told him to close the door he never listens (laughs) so he arrives under the cover of a air new zealand fight flight cunning little so-and-so i believe it's saturday the 3rd of november oh it's like today Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, no. Uh, The unfortunate place is Los Angeles. He's then moving around to avoid detection. So to my main point, if any ABG members are planning on getting together, be careful. Otherwise, you'll end up with this unwanted element ruining your well-planned meetup. Can you imagine it? He'll be swerving around from L.A. to San Jose, then to Las Vegas, and then back to L.A., mostly watching hockey games. So I suppose away from normal people. (laughs) He will be <laughs> departing your fair land on November 16th. So if you're just vigilant between these dates, you should all be fine. If any of you good people happen to bump into the fool, just don't make eye contact with him and don't encourage him in conversation. Heavens, does he love the sound of his own voice? This is something you presenting types would know nothing about. I'm sure you're all very modest types. Yes. Yes, we are. Thank you very much. We hate hearing our own voices. Okay, so to sum it up, I'll quote the sergeant from Hill Street Blues. Be careful out there. Well, between 3 through 16 November. I wish you all a safe and Ivor-free November. So it's Blue Juice juice Skies and Chemtrails from Tarquin Tarquin, Wilberforce Singin' Snodgrass or is it sinjin sinjin okay sinjin i think i've made that mistake before i apologize p.s i'm concerned that my ipad prompted me with my sign-off pps i've been sweet talking your producer (laughs) oh that's how that this made it into the feedback section i guess then tarquin has uh Ben Sweet talking, Miss Liz. I see. Okay. All right. So everybody's warned, especially those of you out in California and uh, both Southern and Northern California and uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Be on the lookout for Ivor. Okay. Thank you for the warning, Tarquin. How much time do we have left? Probably only about five minutes.
4: Yeah, it's not much.
2: Okay. Um, Let's see. Let's skip to nine. I don't know if this will be too long or not, but again, this is kind of a follow-up on a few episodes ago. We talked about the United uh, Dreamliner uh, that declared a fuel mayday, and Ben Ippolito via Facebook uh, wrote in saying, Mayday fuel is required once you suspect you'll be below minimum reserves. But what may be 10 kilograms or 1,000 kilograms under, it may have also been an accidental mayday, depending on what they set in the computer as reserve. Was it divert fuel or actual final reserve? He puts in parentheses declaration of a mayday requires ATC to activate the airport emergency plan, the AEP, at full emergency level. Unlike a pan, which may trigger a local standby response, which has the ability for ATC to see if the pilot needs assistance on the ground. Good good example, I had many times at Karatha, or is that the way you pronounce that? Karatha? Karatha? Was a chopper with a gear issue. Since they can hover and have their engineers put gear pins in, there's actually little call for the Arff to respond. I'm not aware of the AEP at Sydney, but closing roads may be required for two reasons. A level three full emergency, which is appropriate to this size aircraft, means you call in lots of external off airport services to assist. There's a lot of emergency vehicles moving towards the airport. Also, the M1 motorway, uh, aka General Holmes Drive, goes through a tunnel under runway three left, one six right, which is the longest and thus preferred runway for international aircraft, emergency or not. It also avoids having to serve lunch as you taxi all the way back from the parallel. (laughs) Similar to sterilizing for aircraft, you would not want to be unlucky and have a motor accident and a fire in the tunnel with your emergency aircraft on final. Also, for Trans-Pacific heavies, the options generally, depending on where they track, uh, they use UPRs, what's that, Upper Performance Routes or something like that? I'm not sure what that stands for. Uh, Los Angeles, San Diego, Hawaii, Pango Pango, Nandi, Nomiya, Auckland, and finally, Brisbane. Uh, For the Melbourne, Melbourne, I guess I'm supposed to pronounce it for the uh, one that's in Australia, Melbourne, as opposed to Melbourne, which is in Florida. Uh, Flights, you have options in Sydney and Canberra. Didn't know this was going to be a pronunciation lesson too, but I know how one of Jeff's pet peeves is potable, so he wanted to help me out as much as possible. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, that makes a lot more sense now. That because at first when we were talked about this uh, this episode or this incident about them like shutting off all surface traffic and everything else, I thought that was a little extreme. But now that he's explained it a bit, that does make sense. Any comments from either of you?
4: No. Okay. I have a
5: comment on. Well, uh, I mean, <clears throat> uh, I, I get the points he makes, and I agree with a number of them, but uh, uh, I'm not too sure about a, a, a captain declaring a mayday based on um, something that his fuel prediction had churned out. Uh, we know exactly what our minimum reserve amount is, and I'm looking at what's actually in the tanks at the time. No captain is going to put out a mayday based on a, uh, a these fuel prediction page. So uh, I think we can forget that possible thing. It, it would not have been an accidental mayday yeah. for sure.
2: Yeah, it doesn't seem that it would be. Well, we do appreciate your uh, info and your um, your opinion, Ben as always, and looks like my producer is telling us that uh, it is time for us to wrap it up and that's sad because there are so many other good pieces of feedback in here that I wanted to play on today's show, but we're just going to have to move them over to the uh, uh, the next show folder, and hopefully we'll be able to cover all of them in the next show. In a few days' time. Yes, whenever <laughs> that is. We're not sure yet. Yeah. We haven't really talked about it, but uh, yeah, it probably will not be long from now so uh, with that um, you want to learn more about the show do you okay uh, head over to airlinepilotguy.com our website uh, and there's a lot of information there about the crew and the community merchandise coffee fund and much more so uh, please do check out Uh we also have apps for your iphone and android devices on their respective app stores they're free and they don't have ads in them, so they're they're not, uh,
4: not annoying.
2: Annoying. That was the word yes. I was looking for. Thank you. <laughs> um, and you can also send us feedback through those uh, those uh, apps as well, if you prefer. The other way to do it is feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. just plain old good old email. And uh, on the site, uh, you can also have access to SpeakPipe, which is a way for you to record some lovely audio for our show or you can just do it with your device and then attach it to the email that you send to airline pilot guy or feedback at airline pilot dot com and let's see we're also on social media
5: yeah and oh are you going to play something Jeff you just look like you're I, I'm, I'm <laughs> looking for the
2: thing that I'm going to play after you tell us about social media <laughs> social
5: media you can uh, you can attract our attention on Twitter by uh, putting an app abg crew at apg crew uh along with your tweet and you can find us on facebook by the normal facebook preamble with uh a airline pilot guy that's it airline
2: pilot guy that's it that's our facebook page it is and we also have a team on slack and hillel hello okay it's come time to come out now watch the door
7: apg listeners please join us on our slack team Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and playing tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, 1-1, one one, Echo 1. And see you in Slack.
2: Thank you, Hillel. And as always, all of us here wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, talons, Douglas.
5: <laughs> Bye, everyone. Have a uh, wonderful guy, folks. See you next time.
4: Bye-bye.
1: Yeah, he's up. A-
7: Good day. Eh?